Welcome to episode 238B of No Challenges Remaining, our look at the top 10 most defining women of the 2010s in tennis. We did the men last time, now we're doing the ladies court in a win. I'm Ben Rothenberg. How are you doing? How are you feeling as I'm we're doing well. halfway through our list quest here? We're, we're recording these back to back, so I feel like we have good list energy, hopefully. <laughs> yes, GLE. Um, yeah, no. Uh, so far, so good. I feel like our, our men's ep... I hope went okay. Who knows? I mean, by the time you're hearing this, I could have been shouted down uh, on on the Twitter. We both were, I'm sure. No, it, it, it's been a good it's been a good uh, been a good exercise, kind of going through this. And um, I admit, I think you know, once the the last ball fell of the season, uh, really kind of doing the best that I could to kind of check out of tennis a little bit. And as much as um, people have been talking about like best of this year lists and best of decade like I just haven't really been engaging with it um with respect to the sport which is weird because at the start of this decade I was not a tennis reporter and now I am um Mm -hmm. so 2010s wild decade personally (laughs) but um for both of us but um but I think that just kind of like having a good structure of trying to identify the 10 defining players for both the men and the women has really it's been good it's been it's been it's really forced me to sit down and take stock on the last decade in the sport. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've quite enjoyed it. And I've, I've, I gotta say, I've liked doing this by the player, too, than rather than by the match, which is the other way that people do it. I think players is a much more interesting kind of unit of measurement. You get to talk about somebody's whole arc, their whole their whole thing on the tour, and like, and with match, I would just always feel like I would forget something. I could not imagine, yeah. like, ever doing, going through every match and, like, being like, wow, yeah, that was a really, really... Because there were some amazing, you know, first week of, you know, Miami-type matches that you just would never think... Or, like, even, like, this year, like, I think arguably the match of this year on the women's side was uh, Azarenka and Serena and Indian Wells, which was, like, a yep. second-round match. But that was two big names. Maybe it's not the... Maybe there was one of the smaller names that were better. So, anyway, matches lists make me uncomfortable, but the player list, I think, works out well. I also quite like it because um, I was able to, especially for, yeah, I mean, for both sides, but just kind of conceptually think about it as if I was writing the the decade story, you know? So you could kind of conceptualize it that way. Whereas like, yeah, identifying greatest matches or like whatever, it just felt like that's just such a granular weird thing. Like, of especially within tennis, you think of like the thousands of matches over i mean yeah that that are played over the we're supposed to identify five of them and be like confident that we've identified like the five or ten best matches of the year like that's bullshit that's that's just such a dumb 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 endeavor it's a waste of time in my opinion but um people click on it (laughs) let's get on with our uh let's start again like we did with the men with our honorable mentions courtney i think the first person i want to mention i want to what? No, just I. I just I'm scared to mention my honorable mentions. Well, don't don't mention the ones that you know are on my list because we'll get to okay. them when I name them. Okay, right? but I but but this but this goes towards and I don't know. I mean, maybe there are people who didn't listen to the the men's episode, so you didn't hear like our preamble 
to this whole project. First of all, thank you so much for loving the WTA that you didn't listen to the last episode. Adore. <laughs> but secondly, and my trash takes. Um, but but secondly, like so one of the really, really interesting things as you sit down and you look at the men and the women of 2010, um, is that the the putting to the list was such a different process for each because for the men it just felt like okay here are the the, the the four players for sure that are at the top and we all knew who they were um and then from there it was kind of like well and and but to tell the story of the tour because of the level of dominance that Novak and Rafa and Roger uh and for a bit a little bit of it Andy uh exhibited you there wasn't that much air left for everyone else so the list right. was actually relatively easy to put together. The women's list, I just really feel like I'm I'm fine with my list. I'm happy with my list. I also know that if I were to like, if like everybody who tweets it in response, I'll probably look at your women's list and be like, yeah, true. And it'll be like completely not my list because there's just so many women that had something to say about this decade. Um, and I, yeah, so there were just like, crazy names that I just, I would make my list. I was like, oh my God, I've left like 10 players off this list that I genuinely think had something to say about this, this decade, but it is what it is, you know? No, I mean, like, honestly, I think I could have easily made a women's top 20 and felt like there wasn't much drop off in the list going all the way down to 20. And yeah, there, there are two snubs. I know I have particular people are going to be like, how, how could you do this? But I did it, so y'all can deal with it. it. And I think that's reflective of what the women's decade was, right? Like there were so many players who had their moments, so many players who see who really felt important for a while and were important for a while and didn't necessarily sustain it. And just it was this it was this very different landscape, uh, a lot more opportunity, a lot more people taking advantage of opportunities, and a lot more people having big moments and seizing the moment in ways the men often didn't. And that leads to a much more crowded ballot, really, for the women. Um, it'll be also interesting to see how that shakes out when it comes to, like, the Tennis Hall of Fame in five, ten years. Like, is it going to be women just, like, dominating the inductions for the next 20 years? Because it could be. Because who are the men going to be getting in? Yeah, that's um, true. Uh, so, anyway, so here, my honorable mention, I think, I believe you have an honorable mention first to Courtney, is to Venus Williams. Correct. Venus was, it was tough, Venus, because, like, once I realized how tough this list was, I did not think that Venus had done things exclusively within the 2010s to justify her getting, staying on this list. Like, I am so excited that Venus Williams is still going to be playing on tour in 2020. That's so cool and so wild to me that, you know, the player who really got me into tennis as a fan in 1997 is still going to be on tour and will be in Brisbane where I go to start my 2020 season. Like, that's awesome. Like that's, that's really, really cool. I'm not taking that for granted at all, but like I couldn't point to things in the 2010s that made her a player of that decade. So even though while she was like a leading figure on tour and was, is still the has the second most grand slams of any active player behind only her sister. Um, I did not pick her for, for this list. Fair enough. I mean, I think that for myself, the most bubble player and the player that, even as I say this, I'm so embarrassed, but it is what it is. I've looked over it, I'm comfortable with it, and I would use this moment to defend it, is an honorable mention to Maria Sharapova. Okay, she is on my list, obviously. Uh, Yeah, no, and I'm sure, and, and, and the reason why is because 
like I really just feel that Maria's impact was last decade. Yeah. Um, and while Clay Pova was definitely a thing, and I, that's a big reason why I would put her on the list, as well as, to be frank, you know, the doping suspension, because that was a really big storyline, and it does define things in a lot of ways and set the tone for this time in the sport where Serena and Maria were not on the board, uh, and Vika, um, that we, you know, for obviously very different reasons. Um, but it, it created this vacuum that I think does, did lead to how the 2010s turned out but on the whole for me just given it, it wasn't really a reflection of Maria so much as a reflection of the, the 10 players that I put on my list as to why she didn't end up on my list but I I will talk about her when she's on your list and um and I would absolutely totally understand like every reason <laughs> but I understand you like honestly the only there were only two players on my list who were still only two who were like stone cold locks for me being like this person has to be top 10 and the rest was like all like, you know, the rest of you are fair game, fight it out, Hunger Games, let's go. My couple other honorable mentions I want to mention, one um, to Monica Puig, who I think had the best single tournament of any player in the 2010s, in the 2016 Olympics. And that was the most remarkable title that anybody won. And then one more shout out uh, to Rebecca Moreno, who I thought, we mentioned this in the men's episode a little bit too with regard to Kyrgios, but just like the conversations that Moreno started uh, a lot bigger than tennis and it was a, a very interesting way uh, to do that. And so she's somebody who stands out to me as a very sort of quintessentially 2010th player in her own way. Um, so, yeah, yeah those are I my, dig it. Um, I, I mean, I had a, a few others, but I know that we'll end up talking about them uh, on your list because they yeah. did make yours. They just didn't make mine. Um, I think a, a few others that, that popped to mind that um, that I do think they're very much like 2010 decade players uh maybe it's a sentimental thing but i would probably say like i think uh, that is she on your list mm-hmm. oh shit my god i'll, I'll cut that Who's on... no, no no cut that but like is on your list yep let's get Man, to the list our, shall we? our list our list do not overlap i'm excited let's go um okay all right let me uh let's start with you go your first time if you want to courtney uh okay. first for the, for the guys who is your number 10 on your women's list my number 10 played a role in one of them, in arguably the most significant match of the decade. I'm saying significant, not best, because uh. it was not the best mo- match of the, the, the decade. But she's also symbolic of a group of players that I think that it's really hard to talk about 2010, the 2010s without. Uh, the player is Roberta Vinci. The group of player is the golden generation of Italians that had just a phenomenal uh, 2010 decade. But I think that when but I, I chose Roberta because if you were to sit and again I, like I said like I kind of thought about this a lot of in the in the um, framework of if I was going to sit down and write my you know 2500 word essay on the decade just describing what happened and the themes and the significant moments and things like that who are the players that would come up and I think that Vinci absolutely has to come up <laughs> because she stopped Serena from what I think most people feel no disrespect to Flavia Panetta, but I think that many people do feel that if Roberta Vinci does not pull off that upset in the semifinals of the 2015 U.S. Open, that uh, Serena goes on to complete the calendar slam. And that is a, and Serena's season that year was unbelievable. 
Um, and that was probably the most gasp worthy moment as a reporter I had had, I think, uh, probably that decade um, yeah. of being in the desk and just watching it happen and be like, oh my God, I don't understand how this is happening. Um, tennis, tennis Magazine put that match as like their match of the decade as Serena Vinci, and they got a lot of pushback it. for it. I saw from Williams fans, not surprisingly. But like that was, that was like so seismic, that match. It's not about the quality of the match. It's like in terms of like the defining or important or other definitions. I don't know what Tennis Channel stated their criteria as. But like that was so huge. And like that she, yeah, she, that Vinci was the one who derailed this piece of history for Serena. And even if, you know, it was largely Serena, you know, imploding at points. Yes, it was. But Vinci still had to do it and still had to make her uncomfortable and, and bear through it. And yeah, I think she's, I think you could honestly pick any of the four Italian women and they'd be, yep. they'd be great picks. Actually, the one who I was closest to picking because I thought she was the most interesting of the four was Irani. Because Irani, you know, is the only one of the four who qualified for like the year-end championships twice. And who was there being, I think she was the one who got, who stayed like the highest and the, probably had the most time in the top 10 of any of them, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think that's, I think and, that's pretty true. Yeah, and so like, and so you can make a case for any of the four. And, and also just how Irani played and how wild her strengths and weaknesses categories were. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a real, you could pick, I think you'd go well with any of the four and they're all honorable mentions yeah. for me, but I think it's a good 10th pick, Vinci. And and yeah, and I think that a lot of what they did was obviously focused on kind of the first half of the decade, which is why we kind of don't, maybe if we, as we sit here, it, it, the memory of the, the that golden generation kind of falls through the cracks. But obviously you start the decade with Francesca Schiavone stunning Sam Stozer in a bonkers performance um, and riding that wave. I mean, she, she obviously makes the, the final the following year, loses to Lee Na, but was like part of that, 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 um, yeah, kind of kick things off. Arani becomes kind of this this threat, um, particularly on clay, um, particularly at Roland Garros. Flavia, who, you know, everybody loves Flavia, but, but kind of has her big, you know, probably about 12, 16 months until her retirement, winning Indian Wells, and then a year later winning uh, US Open, and then Vinci pulling off that seismic of a win, and, and, and again, continuing to ride the momentum. On top of that, you have like Vinci and Arani being a tremendous doubles team. Um, you have the Italian Fed Cup team, which before the checks exploded was really kind of one of the Fed Cup stalwarts. Mm -hmm. So just in general, I mean, the, the, the front half of the decade was really, uh, yeah, just a, a really great showcase for Italian women's tennis. Um, yeah, it, it's tough to think that, that there's nothing coming in their wake, uh, you know, in the 2010s. But um, I think there's a lot to be said about that core group of four. Um, and I, I, it, yeah, for me personally, it would be hard to talk about the decade without, without their impact. But even if it wasn't for the other three, even if it was just about a singular match, I think that that speaks to the seismic quality of that win from Roberta Vinci that puts uh, Roby at number 10 for me. And the Italian men have talked about like the influence of the women or just like the women like kind of say, showing like, hey, Italians can do this tennis thing and can set their sights higher than maybe the men had let themselves believe they could achieve. And I think the 2020s could easily be a very Italian decade in men's tennis also. I mean, with Sinner, with Berrettini, true, yeah. with uh, who's the who's the guy uh, who won the doubles? Uh, sorry, the Australia Musetti. 
uh, learn some Mazzetti. There's a few, uh, Mager, there's a bunch of really good young Italians. So, uh, yeah, that could be part of the women's legacy too. And yeah, Vinci of the four, she's the one who has the signature moment even more, which is amazing that somebody upstaged Francesca's signature moment, honestly, but Vinci's was even, even bigger and was like a huge world news story that women's tennis hasn't had a moment like that. I don't think in the decade, um, so yeah, Vinci's a good number 10. My number 10, this, these are going to be all over the place. My number 10 is Garbini Muguruza, who won two Grand Slams. Uh, Courtney, is she in your list? No. That's fine. That's fine. It's fine. There's a lot of... Trust me, we will is have... Is it? Is it, Ben? Is it? It's fine. Trust me. But like, Garbini... I know you and I are in a safe space. The thing is that this is going to be posted on the interwebs. <laughs> Which is the opposite of a safe space. It's not safe. But no, I, I do not have Garbino on my list. Okay. So the Garby, like, to me, is, like, this kind of quintessentially 2010s player because, like, the highs were high and the lows were low in this way that I think, like, really wraps up, like, women's tennis in the 2010s for so many players. Like, she was so, so good and so, so impressive, but also disappointing at times. And, like, as and she was amazing on the big stages. She was such a command player beating Serena in a Grand Slam final in 2016 French Open, beating Venus in a Grand Slam final 2017 Wimbledon, getting to number one, but then also, like, you know, losing to Karolina Mukova, who we'd never heard of at the time, on a late match on Armstrong, and just a couple other, like, weird bad losses. And she had this potential to rule the world and to really assert herself in the game, and she got to number one so it's hard to say that she fell short per se but she also didn't do i think anywhere near what i think people think she's capable of and that's what makes her one of the most interesting players i think for the 2020s as well like especially now um getting back with Conchita martinez who people have been hoping that would happen for a long time like she's absolutely one to watch in 2020 in this 2020 season not just a decade but this next year um she also had you know the kind of infamously awkward and uncomfortable coaching timeouts with Sam Sumick and coaching timeouts were a big part of the discussion in the 2010s, often uh, tour events. So, you know, yeah, I, I just thought Garby was a very emblematic player of, you know, potential realized, but not quite this up and down and like this sort of like interesting push and pull of like what got achieved and what got not achieved by players. And so she's kind of emblematic of a few different people, I think, in that way. Um, but she was my pick as sort of the one with the most. I don't know if she had the most extremes because there are other players who ran very hot and cold, but Garvey was certainly, certainly one of those for sure. Which like, there's a lot of what ifs. She's almost, almost like my Delpo in your list for the men, yeah, where like, the, where there's I, like, yeah. there's like an alternate history where Garvey wins eight slams. I think could have happened, could have happened totally, and it didn't. Yeah, no. I, look, I mean, when she, when Garbina first won her her first title. Uh, that was what I think people thought, or even when she made the, her first uh, major final uh, at Wimbledon. And even when she beat Serena uh, at French Open 2014, killed her. Yeah, I, I think that if you were to take a, a WTA player, I say this as somebody who talks to a lot, obviously a lot of like writers and reporters about kind of what their sense is about the tour, you rewind five years, and I think everyone was more than ready, if not rushing to, anoint and crown, you know, Garby as the next dominant. I mean, she had everything. I mean, the game seemed to be built for it. She seemed to be built for it. She was charismatic. She was, um, you know, like, I, I still remember the interview that I did with her after her first, uh, after she made that Wimbledon final uh, up in Montreal or Toronto, I think, um, after the Wimbledon final. And then I talked mm-hmm. to her in the summer. And 
she was still like super down to earth and charming and um, yeah, just an absolute joy and a pleasure. And I think that people really responded to that. So I could I can see if your analogy to Delpo. Um, I think that the reason why she's not on my top 10, uh, despite obviously being a two-time major champion, you know, beating obviously quality players to do it, I felt as though, first of all, that theme of the ups and downs, which um, is very much a theme of women's mm-hmm. tennis in, 2000, in the 2010s, because we are talking about, you know, a, a time where it wasn't a complete free-for-all, because I do think that Serena did dominate. <laughs> Again, like recency bias, people are like, oh, but like, I mean, the first five years of this this decade, four years, uh, you know, or at least that four-year span, like she was the dominant force. Uh, without any question but after that it did become a free-for-all and and so i have that up and downness um represented basically in nine of my top ten (laughs) (laughs) so don't worry folks uh, that story is gonna be told um so i'm not worried about that yeah yeah um but i think that yeah but, but but i do think that with garby i think the fact that Whereas it's so funny because this is so the opposite of what we, what, how you and I felt on the men's list. But that lack of success or, or sustained success on the tour level, I mean, set aside the slams. I mean, she has won Cincinnati and Monterey twice and Hobart. I think those are her WTA titles. Mm-hmm. Maybe Beijing. I think she won maybe Be- Beijing or... Yeah, I think she won Beijing. Maybe Beijing. So, but you know, one, two, so two premier level events, right? If I'm, if I'm doing the math right. Um, yeah, like, so I think that the fact that, like, she wasn't as much of a consistent presence um, kind of cut against her a little bit. And then also, and again, you know, going back to kind of our discussion of the men, uh, kind of similar to, like, a Stan Wawrinka. Like, at the end of the day, like, yes, like, the on-court success was the on-court success, but like Garbino was always in the shadow of Rafa and Spanish, the Spanish public and Spanish tennis has got, got used to Rafa's level of success to where Garbino's level of success didn't seem to move the needle. Right. No, as and much that's... as like it should have. And that was like really frustrating. And so in terms of her impact, um, I don't know that it registered, but I absolutely... <laughs> obviously said the exact opposite thing about Stan, <laughs> where I ranked him on my list. And yet, like, you know, like I said, like he didn't do anything off court. I don't I, know. I, I, do think, I do think that Garby was not super impactful. She was, if, if the word had been impactful, then she would not make my top 10. But like defining, because like, I do think she is, her, her struggles and her highs together are emblematic of something, I think very thematic in women's tennis in this decade. And honestly, like, I think it's one of the stranger phenomenons that, like, Garby is not really, like, a breakout superstar, honestly. She's not, like, someone who has a profile, at least in American media at all, outside of tennis. When on paper she yeah, was supposed so to be. it's so weird. She should. She really should. And she that's, like, really it's, like a, should. It's, like, a really... She did... I've only seen her do one... She did this, like, one interview on, like, a Chelsea Handler Netflix show or something that I saw her do, or so, I think something like that. And it was so odd and incongruous. Like, I don't... Yeah. There's... It feels unresolved she ha- with Garby, she's the t- so... She's the total package, Garbina. She should I be. Genuinely she should be. This. Yeah. And so, like, I, I mean, I really hope, I genuinely really, really, really hope that, like, 
the turning of the page on this decade like turns a page on her career and she can kind of like go at it almost like a return to kind of that self that she had before of being a little bit more free-spirited and um yeah because when she's on it's just unbelievable it's so good yeah yeah totally all right number nine courtney who's your number nine (laughs) so speaking of up and downs (laughs) (laughs) my number nine is the one and only the icon yelena ostefanko Ah, I thought about her. I did. Like, it was, she was an, an early cut, but I did think about her. <laughs> um, I think that there's, the, these are the reasons why. I think that, first of all, honestly, like, I mean, what she did in that French Open final against Simona um, goes down as, as kind of one of those just amazing performances and one of those decade-defining performances, like, definitely on the short list of just I mean, the way that she did it. And I also feel as though the way that she did that, the way that she went about her business in that that tournament, but also the way that she kind of goes about her business on the whole. And I don't want, caveat here as I say this, I don't want people to read into what I'm saying here because I'm. It, this is all positive. This isn't a negative thing and I'm not shading her in the slightest because Yelena is like a really nice person. Like she really is. But I feel as though Osipenko is the one that really brought in this wave that I do think that we are seeing on the WTA tour as of late, the last like three years or so, of this new generation of player, this Gen Z, who doesn't give a shit what you did. Mm -hmm. Like they don't come in with their heads bowed. They don't come in silent unless spoken to. They don't come in waiting to be invited to the veteran table. They're not looking for your mentorship. They're not looking for your advice. There is this confidence, and every single like veteran player has talked about this. Simona has talked about this. Gurgis has talked about this. Um, like Kuznetsova, uh, Kerber, like all of the older players of this idea. For them, they're just like I think Simona is probably the clearest about it. Of like, and she says it with great admiration. She's like, after she lost to Anisimova, right at the French Open, she's like, these kids don't care. They don't care who you are, and they just go out and they just freaking beat you. And there's no fear. And she's like, I didn't have that when I was their age. Uh, Kuznetsova said that as well. So like, I feel like Ostapenko ushered in this world, this audacity to just go out there and play, believe that you belong, believe that resumes don't matter, believe that experience doesn't matter, and just take it you know, by the, by the collar and just own it. Um, and I think that once Ostapenko did that, uh, especially because, I mean, she was technically 20 when she won Roland Garros, but that's only because the birthday, her 20th right. birthday was on the day of the final. She's basically 19 throughout most of that tournament. So she was the first kind of teenager to do that, to to bust through. And then, you know, after that, you obviously see Naomi do what she does. You see Bianca. You see even an Ash. She's a little bit older. But, you know, you have this entire generation of players. Von Joshua makes a French Open final. Uh, Anissa Mova makes a French Open semi these teenagers start coming through and these young players. Yastrzemska. Yastrzemska, Kennan. You see these players who just don't give a shit that traditionally somebody might tell them this is not your time. And so, but I think that Ostapenko was the first of that. Um, I think that what she did, how she did it against whom she did it against in Simona 
to do what she did at Roland Garros, I think that was the moment where literally everybody stopped and was like, anything is freaking possible on the women's tour. Mm -hmm. And it's an absolute free-for-all. So that's why Yelena Ostapenko is my number nine. Good pick, good pick. My number nine, I think it's probably my most unexpected pick of my ten, is, um, and certainly the player who had the least, you know, big-time wins or ranking, but was still a very good player, uh, better than results-wise than, like, Kyrgios, we mentioned last episode, uh, is Andrea Pekovic, who... Hey, hey! I just feel like Andrea Pekovic is this, like, uniquely 2010s figure in this sport. Like, you could not have had, in terms of, like, defining and, like, definitional, you could not have had, like, a Petco phenomenon at any other time in history. Like, she built a persona for herself with social media, with YouTube. She was the OG YouTube star. Yeah, that was, like, a decade before Sitsipas and whoever else is on it now. She gave herself her own one-word nickname. Petcorazzi. She did YouTube. She danced. She did... She danced, she did podcasts with us, she was our first guest. She did, like, magazine writings, and she, just, and she was also just, like, super engaged in the world and in pop culture in this way that a lot of people outside of tennis are, but no one outside of tennis is. No one in tennis is, rather. Like, she was in this time when, honestly, tennis did not always feel very cool. She was cool. And that was, like, that was jarring at times. It was like, wow, like, this is a person who is not, like, caught up in, you know, in themselves and in this world and thinking they're, like, a big deal. And, you know, not that Pekovic doesn't have, you know, an ego like all athletes do. She does on some level, for sure. Um, But it was just a very different way of presenting it. And I thought on my list, too, of also, like, for similar social media reasons, like, you know, like, on my top ten important women in tennis history list we did earlier in the year, I had Kornikova on there. And I was thinking maybe of, like, putting Bouchard on my 2010s list at first. But I was like, no, what Bouchard did was kind of, like, a continuation of Kornikova, really, in terms of her maintaining a profile after her results dipped. But, like, Pekovic was so much more interesting and so much more 2010s than that. And just her sort of curation of herself and her thoughtfulness and all that. And how people really responded to it. People, like, really... It wasn't... People really gravitated towards her, despite her being... You know, a German player ranked sometimes not, you know, definitely not. She ever qualified for year-end championships, I don't think. Uh, she was not a top-line player and not a really, a, never won a huge, I think her biggest title was Charleston. But, you know, she was just something that people really, really responded to in this way. That was almost like the unproblematic curios of the women's tour. <laughs> That's so loaded. That, um... <laughs> that yeah, anyway, she, she's my pick. I, I felt like once I thought of her for this list, I was, like, very sure I wanted to keep her in my top ten. Because she just felt, like, the most of the time of anybody in women's tennis. No, I, I like that. I mean, she's not on my list. Um, but I like that description of just that she is quintessentially a 2010s player. That you, you almost couldn't pick her up and put her in another decade and that it would, it se- it, it would feel seamless. Yeah. That, um, so so I, definitely, I definitely feel that. Um, I mean... There's no secret. I mean, you and I both adore her as a person, mm-hmm. um, and she's a friend of the pod. Um, and and I think that one of the the nice things about about Petkovic is that she made it like, yeah, she just 
I, she was the first tennis player that I had met, and this is going to sound super shady, but I, again, I don't mean it to be. I just don't want to be a professional <laughs> athlete. But she's the first player, tennis player that I've ever met, men or women, that I was like, oh, man, like, I would, I am, like, absolutely jealous of the person that you are. Like, just in terms of, like, you're so smart and you're thoughtful and way cooler than, than I am, um, but just uh, intelligent. Like, I would see her, like, reading just the most absurd books <laughs> during breakfast um, uh, in Wuhan this year. She was, like, sitting by herself in the corner, like, with the ish- with the with that day's New York Times. And I was like, how did you get a New York Times in Wuhan? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> we can't even get visas um, there. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah so so but she was just like a cool human being and uh, she always stood out in that way, like so. But yeah, no, good pick. Just like, good pick. Yeah, just just in terms of how people can how fans relate to players and who resonates and what. I just thought she was a a really kind of like you know clear signal for what that chunk of it represented. Your number eight, Courtney. <laughs> so my number eight, after you freaking slagged her, is Jeannie Bouchard. <laughs> And this is the one that I'm going to get the most, like, what? Like, and that's I fine. thought about like it. Said, she, was, she was on my first draft, Jeannie was, and then, like, I replaced her at Pekovic. But, like, it, she comes to mind early as somebody who, like, yeah. I, hear, I, I I'm think, curious to hear what you say, but, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just think that, you know, she she was just this constant presence on the, uh, in women's tennis. Whether ranking uh, dictated it, whether results dictated it, none of You know, it didn't matter. But whether, you know, obviously her 2014 season, um, specifically her three specific tournaments where she, Grand Slams that she did incredibly well at, uh, Roland Garros, um, Australian Open, and uh, Wimbledon. Uh, obviously Wimbledon finals, semifinals of the other two. Um, massive. Um, uh, you know, the lawsuit with the USTA. Mm-hmm. That became a whole discussion point. Uh, and um, took over things for a while. And then obviously the struggles that she's had trying to get things back to where they were has also been a point of, of that people just seem to not be able to like get enough of, you know, like like even, you know, and Jeannie has tons of haters for whatever reasons that they have. But even when she's losing and she's ranked and she's not even playing on the tour or whatever, like people are tuning in like and reveling in it or like whatever and and it's not entirely fair but this is the truth the thing though with Jeannie that I will say is that and you can correct me if I'm wrong here because maybe I have a bias a WTA bias that's maybe not true but Jeannie put Canadian tennis on the map it wasn't Roundage I think we could debate it it's tough to separate them because they're pretty simultaneous but I think you're right I just think she was the, the first mover. She was the first mover. Cult of personality, uh, you know, and just the way that she was, and you know, being in the SI swimsuit edition, like, you know, going to basketball games, like doing all this sort of stuff. Like she put Canadian tennis on the map, and Canadian tennis followed. Now I'm not saying there's cause and effect because, like, obviously all these players are like kind of aged similar, like not aged similarly, but they're not like it's not like generational differences like human generational differences. Right. Not but, like Jeannie made Bianca pick up a racket. Yeah. Right, right. But like at the but at the same time, you can't say that like a Bianca or a Felix or a Shapo don't look at Jeannie and Milos and what they do and think like, yo, Canadian tennis deserves a, a seat at the table. 
Um, and while in in men's tennis, maybe it's a little bit different, but for women's tennis, I do, I really do see a through line between kind of like what Jeannie was able to do in 2014 and five years later, the arrival of Bianca Andreescu, who seems primed, you know, knock on wood, no injuries to kind of help dictate and tell the story of 2020. So yeah, I just think that Jeannie starting in 2014 on was just a, a, a constant presence around women's tennis and in the discussion of women's tennis and um, and things like that and, and didn't pave the way. I'm not going to go that far and say it, but definitely was a was foreshadowing or maybe kind of encouraged the self-belief that we eventually saw within Canadian tennis, which who prior to that, all due respect to the Rebecca Marinos and Canadian Wozniacki and uh, <laughs> the women who came before them. <laughs> And the Canadian, women who came before them. Canadian Wozniacki is always fun in a That's a Sveta quote. Canadian Wozniacki. <laughs> Alexandra Wozniak. It's a Svetlana Kuznetsova joke, folks. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that that's my defense for, for Jeannie on my list. So I have her at number eight. Probably a little too high. I mean, I could probably totally be fine with putting her at 10. But I just, I felt like there was something I couldn't really shake about Jeannie in, 2000, in, in this decade. Right, no, and I totally get the instinct to like want to put somebody who was, you know, less about their, you know, results impact purely. It's the it's the clear analog to my Pekovic pick, just a different side of that coin. My number eight is Agnieszka Radvanska, who I am like very happy to have on this list. She wasn't. She was. I had to kind of work to put her on here, but I think that Radvanska is really emblematic for part of what I've loved about women's tennis in this decade and people, you know, knock women's players for being one dimensional. And I think it is maybe true that like women's WTA players don't necessarily have as many, um, you know, plan B's and plan C's and deep arsenals of shots as the men do. But also there are so many more styles and tactics of tennis that can thrive in the WTA. And nobody represents that better than Radvanska who got to number two in the world with her game. You famously dubbed her Ninja Courtney and uh, back in the four you do stays. And she has no power to speak of at all. And was a, a very sneaky, crafty player. And she got to number two in the world and took a set off Serena in the Wimbledon final and very nearly got to number one at Cincinnati later that summer. And, you know, and she just like that kind of craft and guile and fun that she had was to me like a big part of what made women's tennis so interesting. And like, if I had to represent like, she's almost on here purely for what she did on court, like actually like swinging a racket, which is probably unique among among my 10. Like, wasn't so much for her persona per se, although she was great on Dancing with the Stars. Um, but it was, it's more about like the tennis she produced and what she showed that tennis could be. And I can't think of a player my men's list or my women's list, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe like Delpo? No, that doesn't even make sense. But like somebody who just really expanded the the understanding of the sport through their through their actual game. That's Aga. And so I wanted to have her in my top 10. And there she is at number eight. Aga is the player that I wanted so badly to put on my top 10. I tried really hard. And I mean, again, I could have easily swapped her for Bouchard, uh, swapped her for... Uh, Ostapenko maybe, but maybe Bouchard if I wanted to make that call and say that I wasn't going to recognize that. But 
because Aga, as you said, nobody swung a racket like her. Uh, it was a magic wand, but she was, um, in a lot of ways, the muse of the 2010s. Um, writers loved writing about Aga. Like there was this, I don't know, the way that there was this like maybe two or three year period where like every leading um, uh, writer had written like a beautiful flowery, like racket-esque uh, tribute to Redvanska and her game and what she was able to do. And, you know, there was the squat shot, which I think was either Doug Robson or, or, or Tom Parada, I can't remember who, that kind of like did an entire profile on it and loved it. And just the, the draw, just the way that she handled her racket. And, you know, she was the fan favorite for God, I mean, for basically the majority of the 2010s on the WTA side. And, uh, and yeah, I, I wanted to shoehorn her into my list uh, so, so much, but I felt like I wanted to just kind of give Bouchard some space to claim yeah, no, uh, in and, the 10s. And Ravonska is like the emblematic person of how tough this women's list was compared to the men's. Like if Ravonska yes. was an ATP player, she would have been slam dunk easily in our top 10 and probably top, arguably top five. Like she was that sort of interesting and different and, and special and cool and, um, yeah, and and that she just barely eked onto my list more or less at number eight and did not get on yours shows how tough this decade was for women's tennis for sure. Courtney, who is your number seven? So my number seven is three-time major champion who beat Serena twice in major finals um, and really I think was the spark that, or not the spark, the like the hinge of the decade. I think that the, yeah, Angelique Kerber. I think that Angelique Kerber, 2016 run to the Australian Open title, um, yeah, was the hinge on this entire decade. Kerber? Where everything changed at that moment. Kerber, we were texting this to make it. It was funny because, like, I made this my first list just from memory, and then I was like, oh, crap, Kerber. And then I wound up putting her all, <laughs> and then I wound up putting her all the way at number three. That's which like, I think shows, totally which I think shows how malleable this decade is in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Like, that someone's forgettable, um, and then you think about it, and you're like, oh, actually. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And I could have talked myself out of it, but I, I talked myself more and more into it. Like, and I don't want to. Well, you you finish your curve spiel, and I get mine. Yeah, no. I mean, I I just when I look at it, I just think that from you, when you track the 2010s, um, everything changes in that 2016. Australian Open final. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Kerber goes on to have the the season that she had in 2016, winning the U.S. Open later, making the Wimbledon final, unbelievable, making the WTA finals final, all these sorts of things. Uh, uh, what the gold medal match uh, of the Olympics that year, unbelievable season. But it's also what kind of changed from there in terms of Serena's dominance. So it's hard to talk about Angie without talking about Serena because they're, they're so, their careers, weirdly, no one would have ever thought this at the start of 2010 uh, when Angie was, I think, ranked outside the top 100, right? She didn't make her run until, two, anyways. Um, yeah, but, but in a lot of ways for me, their, their careers are kind of intertwined. Um, obviously, Angie stopping her in two really, really big finals, Australian Open, and then um, at Wimbledon, um, Serena's kind of record in finals after that loss to Angie was so is so different than her 
record in finals, Grand Slam finals before that. Um, I just think in a lot of ways there was something about what Angie did there that that changed things. I think also in a way, in the way that um, that like Vavrinka in the last episode I was describing as kind of being a player that kind of showed mm -hmm. that, you know, we can't just be focusing on the young players, that like players can have late career resurgences, which we knew on the WTA tour, obviously. You know, like you you had Schiavone, you had uh, Lee Na, you had all these players who later in their careers like made big splashes. But Kerber was a player that nobody saw coming. Like absolutely nobody. And she transformed herself into this 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 rock that yes had ins and outs towards the la the back half of the the, the decade, but um, but yeah that's that's why I had her there. This that's kind of that ending point kind of goes to what my sort of spiel on Kerber was going to be like at the beginning of the decade. Even if you had just limited it to players whose last names start with K, right? Like Kerber, you would have like who's going to be the best? Like okay, okay, like Kuznetsova, like she's one oh nine French, yeah sure. Uh, Kvitova just in his twenty ten just had her big Wimbledon breakout run. Madison Keys, we already had started talking about, you know, early on in her teen prodigy days. But it was Kerber who broke through and who showed, you know, that players, it wasn't always the players who were, quote unquote, supposed to be great, who wound up being the great players in the in the 2010s. And, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and she, and I, yeah, go ahead. No, but I, that's a really, really great point. And, and that's, you know, again, when you look at the, when I describe Kerber as the hinge on this decade, you see what happened after that, right? Like in the latter half of the decade, this goes towards my Ostapenko point. No one thought that anything was off limits. No, Dominika Sabolkova yeah. did not think that the World WTA Finals was off limits. Redvanska, I mean, Angie, even outside of being, you know, the least qualified K to like do something, she, you know, she ran with Caroline. She ran with Redvanska's, both of them. Uh, she was part of that crew of, of, of Polish girls, right? And even amongst the Germans, she was there with Gerges, yeah. who people were excited about, and and and, and Petko, and Lisicki, you know? And yet, like, yeah. every single pocket that she was in, she was the runt. And yet, yeah. she's the one that finishes, yet. you know, the 10th. And yet, and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, when you look at the 2010 I mean, now I'm talking myself into putting her at number three. But like, if you look at the 2010 WTA, 2010's WTA, um, Anjali Kerber's the epitome of it, isn't she? Especially in the last five of, of like, so. anyone can do anything, anyone can accomplish anything, nothing is off limits, and yeah, like, uh, regardless of what people say or what people expect. Like, and I also think that she has this like very 2010s. A little bit like Muguruza, the hot and cold thing, where like, but it's it's better with Kerber because like, or it's, it's the payoff is better with Kerber because like, she wasn't reliable per se in a in a year long basis. Like I think both of her twenty seventeen and her twenty nineteen seasons are both very disappointing seasons when she we thought we were going to set up for big things and she really didn't deliver. I mean, she you know at Wimbledon she lost to. Lucky loser Lauren Davis, who was covered in tape, and that was like a shocking loss for someone of Kerber's caliber. But at the same time, while she wasn't bankable, she was also like a consistent deliverer of high quality matches, and that was the thing that I think really another thing that I think really defines twenty ten as women's tennis. Like God only knows who's going to win. Like stop, don't stop doing draw previews because you can't project any seeds forward. But what you can project is that like if you buy a ticket for like. Day four to slam, you're going to see some really great matches.
and you're going to see really quality battles and stuff. And Kerber exemplified that from the you know when she got to uh, Istanbul for the first time in 2012 and had that amazing match against Azarenka in the round robins. Like that was one of the best matches of the decade, and and she just got there by doing that. And so that kind of like that that push and pull between like the frustrating that you can't do it all the time, but oh my gosh, like you're part of this incredible ensemble cast that can create great permutations of many different matchups and lots of epics. Uh, I think it's really good. I will say also on Kerber, I think she's also symbolic and emblematic of the thing I was kind of trying to make earlier on Pekovich, where like Kerber to me represented maybe most of all the frustrations I had that some top players wouldn't engage or wouldn't be engaged the way that I wish they were, the way that you see other women's athletes in other sports. And this is a lot what I talked about with Linz on the last episode. You know, Kerber was somebody who seemed almost actively trying to make herself as small as possible in terms of her off-court profile in this way that as a reporter trying to tell her story and trying to, you know, hear a voice of a leading player was sometimes frustrating. Um, and that was part of a wider trend, which other players, I think, fit into often too. But Kerber was maybe the most... Uh, emphatic about kind of making sure you left press conferences with nothing a lot of times. So that's the sort of downside of her that I think it's also a larger trend. It was tennis, but uh, yeah, Kerber was my, was my number three. And I, I just think that, yeah, she, the hinge is really good. I, I, I think people, and maybe I usually, and I think I do point to the Vinci loss as sort of the Serena hinge match, but I think you'd be right. Maybe the Kerber loss in Australia, at the next slam is even more of a, of a pivot point. Yeah, that match is still the one that's like the one that got away for Serena for me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, she had it, it seemed in her hands. And, you know, that's when you started to see, and maybe it's a cumulative effect of both the that, that final at the U.S. Open the year before and then the, you know, back-to-back major finals and her starting to feel the momentum go as, as Angie smacked those returns and those passing shots deep in the third. And she kept coming um, in. Yeah, and she kept coming in, and that was a disaster. There's still, I'm kind of, well, it's a credit to Serena's influence and power and, like, fan love that the gif of her getting beamed by the ball off the net cord in that uh, final yeah. isn't, like, more of a thing. Because, like, I was, I, I'm always surprised. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I think that, like, there's just a little bit more, I think that the Kerber match solidified the Serena in Grand Slam final Nerves and Muguruza too. That, the next one also, right? Yeah. And and that that continues to this day. I mean, the the only am I right that the only slam that she won since that was against her sister? No, she won twenty sixteen Wimbledon against Kerber in the final. Oh, that's right. And yeah, then, my bad. Yeah, yeah she then, avenged and then, that. And then Venus. Yeah. But then yeah, I mean her her winning streak for sure dropped off. And the big Serena stat that I have, I, I don't remember the. I'll have to do the math in my head quickly, but like. The first 28 times she made a Grand Slam semifinal, she won 21 of those. So 21 out of 28, which is That's a crazy, so crazy conversion rate. It's crazy. Crazy. But then since then, I think she's like two out of nine, I want to say now. And so, like, she's just not the closer she was. And that's no, it's the, tough. I mean, yeah. she hasn't – since her return, she hasn't won a set in a Grand Slam final. She hasn't really honestly come close no. Uh, since yeah. the the Wimbledon final against Kerber, which I think was a tiebreak, maybe the first set, is a tiebreak or a seven five or something like that. Um, but otherwise, it's been really lopsided, and each match seems to have gotten more and more lopsided. But um, but all that is understandable, and there's a there's an arc to kind of what 
Serena's been going through in major finals the last four that she's had since coming back from pregnancy, which obviously is a massive, you know, um, uh, caveat to yeah. everything. Um, you can't blend what happened before pregnancy with what happened after. But the residual impact, I do think, of, of what happened 2016 on uh, for Serena, I think it, whether it's 1%, whether it's 50%, whatever people can argue, uh, but it, it definitely is there. And so, you know, obviously Angie playing a major, major role in that. Um, and for all the other reasons that I said before, yeah. that is why she is my, uh, what, number seven? She was your number seven, yeah. So, yeah. And I had her at number three. And my number seven, speaking of Serena in Grand Slam Finals, my number seven is, is Naomi Osaka. She's my number six. Okay, perfect. So that's back to back. So, um, yeah, yeah. Osaka will, is the first player who felt much younger than me <laughs> at the top of the game. I was like, wow, you are a different generation than me. I like That's one of the advantages I had coming on tour. I covered my first grand slam for the times in 2012 um australian open when i was only 24 years old and so i was like right kind of in the middle of, or in the younger end of like the player age pack there which i felt like gave me a lot of like ability to sort of relate and make references or understand references or whatever and then osaka you know <laughs> comes out and you know i understood the meek mill joke actually in singapore when she was a uh, next-gen player there but just like she i guffawed she, in a room of silence she but she represents so much in terms of like you know her generation in terms of multiculturalism identity you know and i think people are looking for positive role models and i've been really struck by how much and it mentioned this with garbinia like not to harp on this but like how garbinia hasn't connected to the american audience but oh my gosh osaka has like osaka like is on ellen constantly she's you know uh, it seems like a real, like, and I know that she represents Japan, and I'm not trying to deny that, but she's become the first bona fide North American tennis star. And, it, like, let me rephrase that tennis star in North America. I think, arguably, the only one, like, minted in the 2010s is on either tour is Osaka, who's become, like, a big, kind of A list tennis star in this decade. I think Osaka has broken through and connected with people and resonated with people in a way that other people have not been able to. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of things about her, obviously her age and her, you know, being a child of the internet, as she said, and as Reuters once ridiculously tried to diminish her as, uh, makes her very much of the 2010s. You know, she started off with her, I, remember, I wish they were still up because they were so fun, but like her dad would make hype reels for her on YouTube. They put up when she was a, a young player looking for funding. Um, and it was very much just of this time and of this sort of era and very much, very much clearly an echo generation of the Williamses, um, as they will openly talk about. And that had to take time. So when the Williamses were coming up in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, you know, and even later into the 2000s, it was Keys and Osaka, but Osaka more successfully so far, uh, who were emulating that and becoming of this generation. And then just sort of her whole, you know, awkward introvert but funny on social media thing and her interactions with Sitsipas and her winning back-to-back -back slams, which I've done so long. I mean, like, she just, like, yeah, she just, like, resonates. It makes a lot of sense for me in this decade and, and being... And she's, like, I, I, I feel very proud of... of I think tennis is so lucky to have her right now. That's, that's basically how I'll finish that. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with so much of that. It's interesting because, and obviously this is where, you know, my biases, my personal biases will like impact where I put certain people on this list. But, but with Naomi, she's the first player that I interviewed that felt relatable in a way. Um, and a lot of that had to do with just how um, familiarly Asian American she was. And, uh, you know, like I talked to her when she was 15 uh, at Stanford after she beat um, uh, Sam Stozer. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect. I mean, honestly, the whole story of like that was like uh, Kevin Fisher. I was at Sports Illustrated at the time. Kevin Fisher who would eventually become my boss, was at the WTA at the time, and he was on site comms in Stanford. And he texted me and was like, hey, do you want to talk, talk to Naomi Osaka? And I wrote back and I said, does she speak English? Or I said, how does she, how is her English? And he's like, I don't know, I'm about to find out. Like, we did not know. We didn't know anything. Yeah. We did not know anything about this girl. And, uh, and next thing I know, I'm walking into the press conference because um, Kev never got back to me, but like, and I was, I was, doing another interview and then I walked back into the press conference room and she was at the dais mid press conference and I was like wait what I genuinely had no idea what she looked like I didn't know I just knew her name was Naomi Osaka she beat Sam Stozer and there was a Japanese flag next to her name and um but then in talking to her it was just like so I don't know I just got her like and I felt I felt like she got me like like there was a moment of kind of kind of like oh like we can talk in code and that is why, like, that meant a lot to me personally, which is probably maybe, I don't know if I've inflated her or not. Like, I think I'm, I'm pretty comfortable putting her at six. I had her at seven, but... so not much behind you, no. Okay. And, um, and then just obviously watching her kind of grow and um, find herself as she's still doing and all that. But I think that the biggest thing for Naomi is so much that, Ben, which is that, like, what you said, which is that, like, she has so stunningly become this global superstar and I personally never saw that coming. No. Um, I mean, I, I remember tweeting, like, after she won the U.S. Open, like, give it a few years, she's going to be the highest paid athlete in the world. But highest paid is different than, like, beloved. Like, or, like, I don't know, captures the imagination or whatever. And I feel like that aspect of it has been surprising to me. And obviously, I think, you know, the U.S. Open final plays into that a little bit in terms of, like, what happened there. So people feel sympathy for her. Um a little I don't know but there's just something about this kid there's this x factor of this kid who wants nothing more than to just turtle and be ignored and not be looked at that just draws people in and draws them in even more than maybe she has a right to draw them in at this point you know See, and um that is fascinating and also just seeing her coming out of her shell like I'm so fascinated what the 2020s are gonna be like for Osaka because there is, Agree, yeah. because there, you know, she is, like I said, and you sort of said the turtle thing, like she is this introvert and super, super shy and super awkward and like almost like performatively awkward, like plays, leans into that kind of social anxiety sometimes and how she, how she presents herself and I feel like is honest, but at the same time, she is sort of like, you know, posting more and more selfies and fancy outfits on her social media and just sort of finding herself and finding her comfort and finding her sort of how she feels good about herself and seeing that develop. And I'm very curious to see how her voice develops in yeah. the 2020s. And I put, a, you know, Andrescu and Barty probably in the same category too. 
like I'm very curious to see how these how these women continue to grow into themselves as adults and Osaka especially now is it just has so much influence and power and goodwill that I just I, I yeah. I'm I'm really excited and hopeful that she can she can make a lot of it um, because yeah because like yeah I understood that she'd be a big star in Japan if she ever got as successful as she has been and that come true but the sort of her profile in the U.S. has really caught me off guard. Like I, you know, she's like constantly on morning shows or whatever in the U.S. And just like she has this really it's nobody since the Williams sisters in women's tennis who's maybe Sharapova, but like who's gotten that kind of profile and and with, you know, and with such positive, you know, sentiment all the way through. I think it's very, very cool. And I'm very happy for her and her family that everything has worked out how it has so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that for her, uh, you know, there's so much that is when you talk about her voice, like one of the biggest things and why I'm really curious about her going into the next decade uh, is like, this is the year that she started standing up for herself, like more vocally, like defending herself. Oh, with and, like Nissen and, and things like that. Well, n- not even that, but like, you know, Stuttgart, like when she was just like, okay, I mean, you, everybody's been saying that like, I've had a bad year. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I have, like, you know, and, um, and you know, saying kind of the similarly, I think so much of what her run in Beijing was, you know, beating uh, Andrescu and beating Barty um, to win that title was a reaction to, like, y'all think that, like, like, basically, like, she was the next big thing. Then a couple of months later, Andrescu wins Indian Wells. All the attention goes to Andrescu. Then Barty wins Miami. Then Barty wins, uh, you know, the French Open. Um, and like basically all the attention like left Naomi and as much as like I was just saying she's a turtle and she would like to not be looked at the fact that she felt I think and this is my interpretation of what she was saying this is not what she said outright but like that she was like offended (laughs) like and kind of was like I'm still here like I am still the two-time major champion I'm the one that got to number one first. I'm the one that like, I'm I'm that girl. Like, you know what I mean? I respected that a lot. And I didn't think I would see that from her um, at that stage. And I was quite surprised. Yeah, she, like, I think I said this in a recent episode too, but like, she is like, as much as she is, has this sort of soft exterior, she is so tough and so not to be underestimated. And we oh, saw so that obviously, obviously with the Serena match, what she's made of in that sort of way. And yeah like, petra yeah same the totally. ao final to do that while you're in, on the outs with your coach like i remember saying this a bunch of times because obviously the way that she conducts herself and the way that she talks makes people feel like really protective and sympathetic to her and worry about her mental well-being and worry if she's strong but i remember talking to a lot of different people being like what has this kid done that makes us think that she's weak yeah I mean, the closest thing that you can get to is the collapse against Maddie at the U.S. Open a few years, like five years ago. Maybe, maybe it's the crying at the U.S. Open final, but that's not even that was after she won. So that was after she won. Yeah, so I really don't. <laughs> her know. first maiden slam next to her and stopped her idol from making history. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I, and I think that it's because her, you know, she has a mousy voice and she, you know, she's introverted, and, and we all, I mean, we're all guilty of it. You know, I have to stop myself of doing it. But like, yeah. So the next decade is going to be fascinating with Naomi. And it's weird to think, as she said in in Shenzhen, 20, 
2019 was a better year for her than 2018, and no one thinks about that. <laughs> yeah, that's just true. Totally true. Which is crazy, right? Anyways, so she is. Osaka. She's your number. She's my number seven. Your number six, which leads me to my number six, I guess, who is Caroline Wozniacki, who I almost feel like this was Wozniacki's decade, almost more than anyone else's, which doesn't really make sense, but. She was number one for the first time in 2010 and then got to number one again in 2018. Like, nobody else had that kind of, like, beginning-to-end relevance in the decade that Caroline had. And obviously it was interrupted and there were on and offs and stuff. But, like, she was just kind of, like, omnipresent. And and her tennis was (laughs) debatable (laughs) in this way that, like, was maybe emblematic of how the women's tour felt embattled sometimes and people felt... She felt defensive about it being defensive, Um, but it also worked and like style points be damned, like she won a lot of matches. And the thing is, like, I feel like there's such a different perception of her inside and outside of like hardcore tennis fandom. I feel like hardcore tennis fans kind of like roll their eyes at Wozniacki a little bit, but like casual fans who just like buy one session, you know, for a Grand Slam at, you know, Arthur Ashe on a Saturday afternoon, they go nuts for Wozniacki. Wozniacki gets such, like, love and appreciation from casual tennis fans um, and from, like, sort of the wider world. Like, she is somebody else who has resonated. I was thinking about her when I was talking about Osaka being the only star uh, and, you know, to really come through in North America this decade in in tennis, uh, new this decade. Um, And I still think she mostly is, but, like, Wozniacki's up there. She's close. I mean, she's, you know managed to build herself a, a profile and whether it was when she was Rory McIlroy or whatever, like that she is a, a real figure in the sport who's kind of had a persona that's been, that's been bigger. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I was also very happy for her that she got her grand slam at last. It, this was sort of a, a decade where the number one ranking got popcorned around quite a bit after Serena um, became more of a part-timer. I think it's fair to say. And that Wozniacki, like, got her happy ending and was the first one. And Halep did later, too. But that Wozniacki was sort of the first one to do it. just felt like kind of justice for, like, I know they didn't, I don't know, hopefully not bitter about it. But for, like, the Dinaras and the and the Yankoviches, that, that one of the the women who had to hear all this crap about their ranking not being deserved for so long. And Wozniacki had her number one ranking for 60-something weeks, I think. Um, and was two-time year in number one before winning a Grand Slam. Yeah. I was I was just happy for her, and she felt like a lot of things that she went through, and a lot of things she represented were very much on brand for women's tennis in the uh, 2010s, and just kind of yeah, just kind of always there. So that's my Wozniacki. Yeah, no, I mean, I I don't have Caroline on my top ten, and that was I know I said this about Aga, but I I felt like that was like the biggest like unforgivable unforgivable omission from my from my list, and I just. At the end of the day, like, it's not that I don't think she deserves to be on the top 10. I think she does. But I just wanted to, like, tell the Bouchard story and the Panko story. Those are probably the two players that I'd knock off, I guess, um, in, in place of her, uh, to give a more full kind of description of the, the decades. Um, because I think that the stories of just kind of like the, yeah, the um, up and down nature, the wide open field, slamless number one, all that is told via a bunch of these other players that are on my list. But um, yeah, I, I thoroughly echo everything that you said about Caroline. And, and uh, we haven't even talked about her retirement. 
her upcoming retirement. No, that's right. Yes. Yeah, we should. I meant to bring that up. We probably should. She has. She will do that right now. She has discussed or announced uh, in, in the very 2010s method of a screenshot of the Apple Notes app that she is uh, going to be playing her last tournament at the 2020 Australian Open, which is not really... A, it's unusual that we don't see players doing kind of mid-year or non-end-of-year retirements that much. But at the same time, it's not a shock at all, I think. Like, you know, the writing was kind of on the wall of Caroline. Um, she's talked openly about wanting to retire for a couple of years, or her father had mentioned it too. Uh, she's had the health issues with the rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and she's been on tour for a long time. Like, she... And, you know, I think Serena and Federer... And Venus, like they kind of, and Sharapova, I guess, is still around too. Kind of warp our perspective of how long careers can or should be. But like Caroline, you know, has had a longer career than most all WTA players used to. She got on tour when she was uh, sixteen, like pretty full time. Was like was the last really really good sixteen year old to be playing a full time schedule. I think she got into top twenty. I want to say when she was sixteen or seventeen. And that might be a little bit off, but yeah, that she's stepping back now that she's thirty just feels like good for you caroline honestly especially how she plays how tireless and indefatigable she is like no one has deserved like putting their feet up more than than wozniacki i feel like yeah caroline's one so, of those where like i'm happy she's for her. put in more miles at 30 than a lot of players at 35 or 38 <laughs> like um yeah. in terms of how she played and you know and, and especially just her support of the tour uh playing full schedules year in year out uh, for for a big chunk of the prime of her career uh, is massive. And I think that the WTA as a tour, uh, as myself working for the tour, we owe a lot to Caroline, um, you know, in a time where, you know, Serena was playing a, a part-time schedule or, or Maria wasn't playing. I mean, she doesn't ever play a part-time schedule. I mean, she always plays in the limited schedule that she does. Um, and at a time where there was a lot of kind of ups and downs, like Ivanovich wasn't doing much in the early 2000s and like whatever, like, but for that first like four years of the decade, um, Caroline was the star. She was the one that held it down week in, week out. Um, you know, obviously dating Rory initially, like elevated her status, uh, I think worldwide, her yep. friendship with, with the Serena I think really elevated yep. her status, and then obviously getting married to David Lee elevated her status in the U.S. Uh, elevated his status and too, elevated his real. status as well. Uh, but yeah, so and and her, I think that the big the biggest thing though that I will um, give to Caroline, not because I'm diminishing anything else, but because I think that it actually is really really significant, is just the energy that she brought onto the tour, and she was you know, the ringleader of that crew of girls. And she was like kind of so open and friendly and just kind of talked to everybody and really was a proponent from very young on tour of being like, I don't understand why we can't be friends. Like, why would we be at each other's throats? Like, that doesn't make sense. And the she really held on to that for, mu for much of her career. I mean, as you get older, as all the older players say, they're just like, dude, I just don't have anything to talk to <laughs> with like 22 year olds when I'm 30. But, you know, for, for the first half of the decade and, and for a while, she was she was beloved in that way in the locker room. And I, I respect that a lot. I, it, I mean, I think people kind of we're now used to it. The Wozniacki Serena friendship. But like, gosh, like 10 years ago, had you told me, oh, yeah, Serena is going to be, you know, a bridesmaid at this like, you know, Danish number one players wedding. That was so not how the tour socially looked. Wait, she's going to be a bridesmaid? Or did they already get married? And that's in the what, past, right? Wozniacki and Lee? was she a bridesmaid or just like a? I think okay, so. whatever. I 
Okay. I, she was in, I, I saw photos. Okay. I, there, you know, bridesmaid, <laughs> plausibly a bridesmaid, let's put that, I, I, I think she Fair. was. You know what I mean? Like, it's just that, like, that Wozniacki could, like, with her sort of earnest, why not audacity, uh, it's maybe the wrong word for it, but just sort of this, like, the kind of social hoodspush she had to just be like, hey, let's, I'm going to go befriend Serena, which is like, Serena's not, you know, a dragon or anything, but no one had done it before outside of the Williamses, really. They were in the 2000s. It really did feel often like Williams is against the world sometimes. And Caroline was a part of breaking that down. And her sort of like, she set a tone of like being friends with Vika, being friends with Aga, being friends with all these people and Serena and like kind of was like a uniter. And remember, she even tried to pop a, lo- a balloon behind <laughs> Maria Sharapova. It is my number one <laughs> iconic moment of the 2010s. Is that? It probably is. That's probably right. I mean, so like, and that was like very much like, well, she gave it a shot. So uh, that's Caroline Wozniacki, number six. Courtney, who is your number five on your list? My number five is a player who both, I mean, I mean, it's an imperfect balance, obviously, if you're the player and obviously from anybody who loves women's tennis because it was unfortunate, but like who both made impacts on the court, but her absence was was also felt by what it felt like she was going to do and then wasn't able to do. Victoria Azarenka. Mm-hmm. She's number five, also. Oh, hey! Yay! 20. I feel. I feel like from here on out, we're gonna be mentioning the same names. Ah, uh, I still have Sheriff over to come, so not quite. Fair anyway, enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so Victoria Azarenka at number five, a player who started this decade seeming like she was going to be there, competing with Serena as an alpha on the tour. I mean, just the whole. Everything about her, the the way that she played her game, the way that she hugged that baseline, the way that she never backed off, her stubbornness in how she did it, and also her tenacity in her game really was a, was reflected off the court as well. And, and just like how she was. And, and just like with Vika, it was interesting to just kind of, as a, as a fan, obviously, as a, or I guess as a blogger, I should say, at the start of the decade, moving into being a reporter in the beginning to middle of the decade, and then being part of the tour and being a, t- a writer for the tour in the latter half of the decade, it was, it was fascinating to just watch Vika kind of mature and mm-hmm. evolve and change and, and obviously deal with a lot. I mean, it's, it seems like 30 years ago that she was dating Red Foo. Oh, God, we I forgot standing, that. And we were standing in Indian Wells all access hour. And all of a sudden I was like, I feel a presence behind me. And I would turn my head and it was like Red Vu in leather oh, leather pants. Super remember, the nice guy. remember the interview we did with him in Istanbul? Oh. You and me. He was yeah. a very nice guy. He, he was, was a by the super way. nice guy. I have to say. Like he was like an incredibly nice guy. And was like so excited to just be around it all and so supportive of her and yeah, so I have nothing but love for Red Foo, genuinely. That is a I'm remember when of the music, decade but... kind of name drop, though. I know, I know. Crazy times. But yeah, so all of that, and then, yeah, like everything that happened to her over the decade, I don't know, Ben, like, it's the same, so I don't want to monopolize the mic. Go. I, well, I, I was going to hit a lot of the same notes. I mean, like, I really felt like Azarenka kind of grew with the decade and grew with us with the decade. Like, I gotta say, when I first started covering the tour more full-time, 2011, 2012, like she started off like super confident and uh, on, like 
obnoxiously so, honestly, and like not very self-aware, not very engaged in the process, honestly, and she was not someone, oh, you know, honestly, who I like enjoyed being in press conferences with. But then she's like really found her voice and found her maturity and got new management, which I think helped and went through a lot of st- tough stuff that really I think helped her get some perspective and get some experience and find her voice. And then it was frustrating because once she started to really get a hold of her voice and her, you know, her thoughts and her, all those things that I was saying, I want more of from women's tennis players, top stars. Vika had that, but that's when she lost her position of ranking relevance on tour in the last couple of years when she just hasn't, since she came back as a mom, she hasn't been able to get back to where she was. And the frustrations of that, it's all very, you know, it's, it's very uh, touching and very real. Like this is not, hasn't gone quite how she wanted to. And there's a lot of that in the 2010s with Serena too. I mean, and Sharapova and whoever else you want to name, like this sort of like, it's not a fairy tale, this tour. I mean, like the tour sort of started, the decade kind of started off with Kim Clijsters or maybe 09 Kim Clijsters. and, And that was when things were sort of like easily romanticized. And then like by the end, things got tougher and you could make some sort of 2010s grand comparison to like what's happening politically in the world that tracks with those sort of changes and how things shake out. But like, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's just it's been tough to watch, but also makes it it's very you know interesting and very moving and very defining of the decade. I think too, Vika and, and what her sort of journey and all the while her tennis was is great and what she and she was the one of everybody who really I mean Kerber did it kind of sporadically and picked the right moments, but Vika was the one who's been the toughest matches. Serena's best matches have been against Vika. And, and Serena's, you know, again, a defining player. The decade we'll get to her maybe later in the rankings. We'll find out. Nah. But, but Vika, yeah, Vika, I think, just fits in. It's like somebody who's gone through a lot in the decade. And we were men- I was mentioned to you, I think you were surprised to hear when you were, we, were, we both recently watched Marriage Story. Uh, and one of the main characters in Marriage Story uh, is based off a lawyer who, at, at least at one point, represented Vika. And so I was like, oh, wow, I know about this marriage story thing from covering Azarenka, which is like shows the realm of her experiences in this, uh, the breadth of her experiences for better and worse in this last decade. Um, so she's been through a whole lot. One of the most compelling players of the decade for sure. Victoria Azarenka. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the word to describe it is, is just how compelling she is. And, and yeah, like as, as a reporter um, early in when she broke out, which would have been, you know, when she had every reason to have swag, and wear her snapbacks and be like over you as a reporter. She was difficult. Um, there's no way around it. There was every yeah. question you would ask. She was contrarian. It was like, Vika, the weather was so beautiful today and the sky was blue. Was it? I don't really think the sky was blue. I think that that's a, just an <laughs> assumption, you know, people make for no good reason. You know, for me, the sky is always red and that's just always been my truth. And you were just like, I, what? <laughs> What is happening yeah, right just, now? You know, and she's just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. She was well, and, and remember she, the, the she photo at the yeah at the early beginning of the season, uh, beginning of the decade, which she took when nobody was in her press conference at India Wells, and this was so indicative of Vika at the time, and, and this is all going towards this story of evolution. But uh, at the time where she took this photo and posted it on Twitter, and everybody was kind of like. That's a self-own. About how no one showed up to her press conference. Yeah, she was showing the empty seats in the press conference room. Yeah. Like, that's not owning us as the members of the press who are all covering different matches at different times and, 
you know, and maybe at that moment you're not it was, the story, et cetera. I remember cetera. what it was. It was it was in like deep in the first set of a semifinal it was at night. between Sharapova and Ivanovich. And Ooh. um and That's Vika why I came wasn't in, there. And Vika came into press like <laughs> again, players do this a lot, but like I, it's something as a reporter we all wish it was somehow sometimes better, but like Vika comes in when they're like maybe going into a tie break or something or something where like you can't leave yeah. that match and like and you wish that like she'd come in between sets or before the match even starts or something. But like um yeah anyway and it was just like yeah but it showed that also and this is when she was in 2012 like undefeated that year and should have been the most like fascinating person but she was you know not resonating people are like actively off-putting sometimes and so um and so yeah so but seeing her again mature and grow and we had her on she was on remember when we did the ncr live show in uh mason oh yeah yeah, she came on she was our guest for that and like seeing and like that's not something honestly that i would have thought would have been possible you know, four years early in her career. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. And that's the thing. Like, I and she and I say all this only because Vika has acknowledged it. Like, yeah. she she got to a point in her career where she looked back at who she was before and the decisions that she had made and had a sense of like, man, I did not know that that was coming off that way or that you know. And and there was kind of a reckoning. And so she had turned this corner, like at that moment. And as that happened, like her body got healthy again. And then she had that incredible, what, 2016, no, 17 start? 16. No, 18. Six, or she went oh, into Wells in Miami, yeah. Right, Brisbane. yeah. She does the Sunshine Double, wins Brisbane. And you're like, yo, Vika's going to freaking take things over. And then obviously she, she gets pregnant. And um, a surprise to her, I think, a surprise yep. to everyone. And then when she came back, obviously, one of the things that I find, sorry to go on so long about Vika, but Fine. like so, that's so compelling about Vika and why I have, you know, I probably started the, the, the decade feeling almost like, I mean, I think I was like at one point boycotting her press conferences. Like <laughs> that's how I was feeling about it. Like I just was not about it. To then like now, like a decade later, like kind of having an like she's probably the player that I have the most heart for because of the what she's gone through in the latter half of this decade and her trajectory and all, even if you then take it back all the way of being like a you know 13-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid moving from Belarus to Nikolai Habibulin's house in uh in Arizona, Arizona yeah and being bullied and not you know people not understanding you and what kind of person that kind of creates and then having success the way that she did and obviously then what kind of person that creates to then who she is at now I have such a heart for her and I think that one of the really in my opinion kind of like the travesties of um the tennis cover not tennis coverage I don't want to paint with that broad of a brush but I think that there's so much of what I think Vika is very inspiring and I'm sure she wouldn't want to be inspiring in this way, but what she's having to go through as a single mom um, with a son going through what, what has been at times an acrimonious custody dispute in both directions. Yeah. In both directions. um, And while all the same time trying to kind of reclaim her place on the tour to do the thing that she knows she can do so well, but it hasn't come off the last couple of years. Um, I just really feel for her. 
Um, and she's been so vocal and so articulate about so many things. I mean, she's been an activist in her own way. Um, yeah, I just, I think that, that she's a pretty special human being, honestly, to go through what she's come through, you know, in this past decade and, and to be the woman that she is. Very lovely. Uh, that is Victoria Azarenka, our shared number five. Courtney, who is your number four? My number four is another player who went through some stuff in 2000, in the 2010s, um, but um, has been beloved throughout the decade, and that is Petra Kvitova. I, this is the first of two, um, that I do not have Petra Kvitova on my list. And wow. that was not easy. <laughs> I know. But, yeah. But I, I was pretty confident you would, so I was like, we'll get to her with Courtney, so... Courtney, talk to me about Petra. Petra Kvitova. Um, I think that, you know, when you when you talk about this decade and you talk about the sheer, like, new talent that was ushered in in the 2010s, I think number one on that list to me is Petra. I think this, wow. this season, just in terms of brand new talent, I think that... Oh, the, that um, actual one season. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Sure. Well, not just that one season. Like, I would rank what, like, what she can do, what she can do, and we know that that thing that she does is like a red line thing. Like, we know this, right? Like, that. But I, I will continue to maintain that at her best, you know, outside of Serena, and I still would love to see the best Petra against the best Serena, and I'm scared we're never gonna see it ever again. Um, but I think that Petra is on a different level when she plays the way that she is capable of playing. I think that the way that she has conducted herself, her evolution as a player who, you know, she won Wimbledon and could barely speak English. Nobody really knew what to do with her. To be, to finish the decade as the statesman of the tour, as probably the most beloved player on the tour. And then again, obviously, I mean, you can't really tell her story without talking about what she's had to come through and to overcome a home invasion robbery, to be stabbed in your left hand, to, you know, if you haven't read Bonnie Ford's uh, profile on Petra, uh, which has won awards, mm -hmm. you should do it, because it's the seminal one, but for her to be in the back seat of a car, driving for hours, you know, within hours of being stabbed with her fingers barely attached to her hand, um, I can only imagine what was going through her mind during that drive. And whenever I think about that, I get like really emotional. Um, I think for all of that and then to have the career that she's had post-stabbing has been unbelievable. Yeah. I think that she's a player, regardless of ranking, you always paid attention to where she was in the draw. You knew that any given tournament, Petra could win it. You also knew that she could lose to anyone. Kum -kum. In that yep. way, yeah, in that way, she was remarkably compelling um, because she mattered. Like, you had to pay attention to who she, to, to where she was and what she was doing. Um, yeah, so I'll stop waxing poetic about Petra, but I think that she's, you know, whether or not she's ahead of Vika, maybe Vika should be ahead of her, I don't know, but she's definitely shortlist uh, a defining player of this decade for me. Yeah, I, obviously, like, I, she's super, super compelling. Um, and her, yeah, what she went through is every is made the most sort of epic journey. And I do agree, like her peak peak Petra is is up there 
possibly the best tennis we've ever seen it, for best match any one player's ever played, probably 2014 Wimbledon final. But yeah, I just had a tough time with Petra when I decided to leave her off. Like I just couldn't figure out what sort of larger thing she represented in terms of like, I could talk about Petra, but still simultaneously feel like I was talking about other players' journeys too. And I could have maybe gone the check route, but I, yeah, anyway, a lot of tough choices to be made. My number four was Maria Sharapova, who is, I agree with what you said at the beginning, sort of probably more of a 2000 star than a 2010 star, but she's still like such an alpha and this sort of this like legacy, like old school star on tour, almost like an old Hollywood thing. And she just always like, I don't know, something about her just always feels so, I'm too much older than Maria, but she feels so much older than me. When I'm around her, she has this sort of maturity and like, <laughs> yeah. and like, I know what you mean, and yeah. like her sort of like, yeah, it's a very grown up way she goes about things. And she, you know, she was a slam champ when I still had a year of high school left. So that got her a little bit of a head start in life in a lot of ways. Um, but just, you know, she was a big part of conversation as that continued a little, a little bit like how you had Bouchard, like, you know, conversations about what value is in women's sports and what should be getting attention, what shouldn't be getting attention. A lot of them are centered around her. Um, and in the Meldonium, the scandal was the biggest moment in tennis in the 2010s, or biggest scandal in tennis in the 2010s, uh, was her testing positive. The biggest sort of shock scandal moment that the sport men's or women's had in this decade was was that, um, which we've talked about plenty at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, she didn't, and, and also the match that she had against Hallett, the 2017 US Open, was like... That was like a prize fight. Like I've never quite—I don't think anything quite lines up with that. Even though it was a first round, the stakes felt so high in that match. Yeah, night match on. Ash. What was the more? Like, what was the better? What was the better match to you, Halep, Sharapova, or Bouchard Sharapova, Madrid, or Rome? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I mean. Because I didn't mention right? it with Jeannie, like, but like that was like an iconic match to me. That was really that was big. I mean, like that was Jeannie's. Like Jeannie kind of probably like sold her soul for the for that win and like never got any after. Um, but yeah, like that was. Uh, and then Jeannie beat Kerber after that. And actually, backed it up. And Kerber retired like five zero down the second. Not great, Angie. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like the Madrid one was so tense that I had to like turn it off at some point. I was I think it was on like. Oh, were you BN not there? Something. Oh, you were no. there. That's right. Okay, because like there, we were it was there, on and, BN and it was just the whole thing. Yeah, it, there was a lot of just yeah. There, I think it was what the backhand pass that Genie hit like late in the third. That was just like still one of the more stunning stunning shots that I've seen from her. But oh yeah, no, that was incredible. Maria was this sort of was this antagonist on tour for a lot of people as she was in the 2000s but that she like stayed around and had this sort of you know staying power that i don't think people expected her to have either it's a common theme in this decade for both men and women like wow can't believe this player still has finished the decade essentially it's still going as an active player maria is very much one of those yeah i think that she just became this real counterweight you know people still take it as a big deal to play and to beat maria sharapova and she has this sort of like star power and resonance and uh, stage presence, I guess, but also sort of, you know, weight to her matches that I just don't think many other players have achieved this decade. So I, I put Maria number four. Yeah. 
No, all those arguments are totally fair. I liked your uh, analogy of, of, of her being old Hollywood. I think that's absolutely apt. There is right? something about her that like, like I'm always awkward around Maria. Like I cannot talk to her. And she's been nothing but ever very nice to me and very professional to me and literally has never, ever been rude and um, cracks jokes and things. But I'm always just kind of like, I feel like she's from a different time. Um, and I, that's coming from somebody who is who is older than she is, like by a good shout. Um, but I think that the reason why, I mean, I didn't have her on my top 10, I respect everything that you said, uh, but the reason why I would, the main reason why I had a problem leaving her off my top 10 is nothing of what you said. And it was primarily because I think that there's a lot to be said about Claypova as a phenomenon of the aughts. And obviously, you know, Maria wins her three, wins three slams. No, one, two, yeah, three slams in the in the 2000s, right? Yep. Um, and then she wins her two clay slams, completes the count, the the career grand slam, wins and ends up what is very likely she will finish her career with the Roland Garros being her most successful major, which who knew? Oh, ladies tennis, but um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and I think that with Maria doing what she did on clay and transforming herself on that surface to be Claypova. I think that is when the idea of surface specialization died on the WTA tour. After that, I think the impact and the ripple effect of that was very different. I think that people started to look at that and say, well, why the hell can't I win on clay? The power players, the, you know, the Madison Keyses, the Petra Kvitovas, the Karolina Pliskovas, like all of these power players started to look at it and be like, well, there's no reason I can't. Meanwhile, you know, like in the in the wake of Maria doing what Maria did, um, you know, beating two quote unquote clay specialists in those finals, one easily, one less easily, in Arani, uh, which was one way traffic, uh, and then Simona, which was a total sliding doors match. If you want to talk about the what ifs of the of the decade, um, but uh, but after that, you have Ostapenko. Winning Roland Garros, you have, uh, you know, whatever, Simona winning Wimbledon. You have uh, uh, Ash winning Roland Garros. The idea that, that but yeah, the idea of, of surface specialization uh, just was no longer a thing because literally the whole tour looked at Maria and was like, well, shit, like I can't write off this segment of the season anymore, whether that's clay or grass. So I think that the ripple effect of that is, is quite significant. So that's why I think that she is deserving of a top 10 spot, but I didn't put her in the top 10. And you put Jeannie in. I was just going to rub the salt in her wounds. Oh, my goodness. The story needed to be uh. told, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Courtney, who is your number three? My number three, to very few people's surprise, I think, is one of the players that I anointed much to, to controversy on my WTA Mount Rushmore, uh, and that player is Lena. Lena is my number two. Yeah, I, I, upon reflection, I think that I probably should have put her at number two, honestly. But as it was, I put her at number three. Uh, but number two is totally fair. Um, yeah. Lena, what can be said that we haven't already said on that Mount Rushmore podcast? Um, just changed the shape of the sport. It's weird to me that everything that she did was in this decade. 
Then she retired in 2014 I, too. Yeah, like I, mean, I, I kind of had to stop myself and be like, wait, what year did you win Roland Garros? And I was like, oh yeah, no, that was okay. I was gonna say like of of the ten women who are on our most ten most important women of the decade show, she is the one who made her entire impact in the 2010s. Like she was a 20. I mean, she did make a couple slam decent runs and before that, but like her first slam semi was 2010 Australia, um, yeah. I think, pretty sure, and uh, won their first slam 2011 French, won in 2014 uh, Australian Open, and then was done at 2014 Wimbledon. Yeah. Um, and so it was all in a pretty concentrated time in this decade, and hadn't really been talked about before uh this decade as a player who was going to be winning slams i mean maybe i mean she was you know she just hadn't put it together yet and then it came together for her pretty pretty quickly and pretty emphatically and getting to number two in the world and doing what she did um yeah that's pretty darn good i i mean the only thing i'll say is like we said this on the on the on the 10 most important show too but like no player i think has ever like had the sort of gravitational pull to shift the direction of the actual tour the way Lena yeah. did to change the geography of the tour to make, you know, two of the premier mandatory premier five events in China now to make the year end championships in China and the whatever you want to call Zhuhai event in China too. Like she has so shifted the the gravitational center of the sport of the WTA's business strategy towards China, and that's all Lena. You cannot talk about why the tour looks the way it does now in terms of its map without that player. And I can't think of any other player uh, in the sports history who's had that kind of effect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, you know, so much of her impact is effectively business related. Um, The sport and, you know, uh, yeah, she reached down the Earth's core and shifted the tectonic plates effectively um, by winning, you know, Roland Garros and then solidifying it and being part of it and, being right there in the mix for what you get career high number two mm-hmm. um, and continuing to, I think, have impact. I think that the, the you know, the full effect of the Lena uh, experience will be seen maybe in 10 years um, as, as China has every right to, to demand a seat at the table um, in numbers and it hasn't happened yet. And maybe it won't ever happen, but if it does happen, it'll definitely be because of her. Um, and yeah, and just again, obviously the the charisma that she had, um, the way that she kind of reshaped how people saw Asian players, um, how people, um, yeah, oh, you have a sense of humor. That's so rare for a Chinese person. Mm-hmm. I will never forget that moment in a press conference at the Australian Open, and yet here we are. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's just so emblazoned in my brain. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, like, racially tinged issues that kind of came about, like, around Lena's rise that are emblazoned on yours, emblazoned on mine. Like, it was, it felt, you didn't realize that tennis wasn't ready for it until it happened and you realized, oh, my God, tennis is not ready for this. Like, having an Asian player, (laughs) like, a Chinese player. On a lower scale, it was just, like, almost, I don't think it was obviously nowhere near as extreme as this, but give you almost a small taste of what it might have been like covering like Althea Gibson coming on the tour and like the yeah. level of just like or Serena and Venus when they first constant, came on tour yeah but like the constant like micro yeah those two but like the constant like microaggressions that were constant even just the not not debating over how to say her name which persists to this yeah. day um yeah so uh 
yeah, I, I think Lena's a slam dunk, easy pick um, for this list. She was one of the two who I was like, I know I'm having her on here. Uh, oh, for sure. Not even. Yeah. There was she no was way a top three. She was a top three lock for me. Um, and I, when I when I talked to Lena at the Australian Open this past year, um, I was like, you know, Lena, like how, what? And it was maybe a few days after, um, oh no, that would have been a half last year. Well, it, it, this was definitely at this year's Australian Open, I think. But I was like, Lena, like you look around here at the Australian Open, a tournament that you really loved, and you see Chinese signage, right? Like 1675 Verena? I can't remember Whatever what the number is. is yeah. But yeah, it's a Chinese baiju company. Um, you see the signage on the on the boards. When a Chinese player plays, they switch, like Peugeot will, or Kia or whoever will like switch over their signage to be in Chinese. To get like, yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, but it happens with the Chinese players on show courts. They'll like for for tournament. I think it's very possible that Roland Garros does it as well. Um, yeah, I've seen it at Roland Garros for sure. Yeah, and then I was like, you know, in Shenzhen, you know, the WTA finals are moving to Shenzhen. All this, like, what do you what do you think when you see all this? You know, because I was like, this is because of you. Like, it's not. There's just zero way that you can break the causal chain. Like, you know, like, it's because of Lena. And Lena, being Lena, was just, like, thought about it quietly. And she's like, she just looked up and she's like, I think maybe they should cut me check. I was like, yeah. they absolutely should. Like, this is absolutely and, correct. And you know what, Lee? And Lena, they already have. You've been well paid for your influence. <laughs> <laughs> she a very rich lady with two very adorable kids. Love it. Anyways. Yeah. So, um... Your number three. My number three, we already talked about, is Kerber. Oh, okay. So, I don't know if you're doing the math, but I did leave out your number two, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> wow, dude. Which that I... That is aggressive. <laughs> that is aggressive. I... Like, I'm not mad, but I... like that is aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is the one. I knew I had one snub this and be like, this is not going to... I didn't think you'd have... I thought you'd have a number three. I didn't realize I was going to go all the way number two with her. Um, it was 50-50. But... Lena uh, could have been too. Yeah, but um, so can you say who your number two is for people who haven't done the math here, Courtney? My number two is Simona Hallett. Yeah, so Simona, I'll give my like very brief meek thing. Like again, with me, I was looking for people who embodied larger trends, and it's almost the way you described Stan. I think a bit. Like, in the last episode, like, that's kind of a little bit how I feel about Simona. Like, Simona obviously has had better results than Stan. Well, fewer slams, but more time at number one. Um, in that she does big things, but they're kind of, like, for herself. And I haven't, extra I couldn't extrapolate any bigger picture meaning off of Simona. Like, how the tour would be different without Simona, I wasn't sure. Um, but please, Courtney, I'm sure you'll give a good reason for it. And not that she's a, I'm not saying she's a bad pick remotely because she's like two time year in number one, right? Yeah. Uh, uh recent, one time, recent. actually. Oh, you're in number one. Yes. Two times. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and Wimbledon champ and French Open champ and other things like arguably the best player of this half of the decade. Um, so Courtney, why is Simona Halp your number two? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, the biggest thing with Simona is that I don't think that you can tell the story of the 2010s without mentioning her name a ridiculous number of times. Um, that 
whether she was a background player to, you know, uh, Sharapova winning her her final major um, at Roland Garros, uh, to her quest to win her first major, which dominated the conversation. I mean, we have to understand that during this time when it's happening, Serena and Maria are off tour. Like, this is what I mean by in, ter in terms of the vacuum that existed uh, when Serena, Maria, and Vika, all for a variety of reasons, were not on tour. It created this vacuum. It allowed for uh, a generation or a group of players, I shouldn't say a generation, but maybe a, maybe that next tier of player to step into the spotlight, to, to be the ones that things were expected of and to either step, step up or be completely overwhelmed by the moment. I think that there was something so human about what Simona Halep was trying to do from the time that she, you know, stepped on tour until the time, you know, until now, um, you know, her quest for Roland Garros, her quest for number one, her ridiculous number of failures at getting both. Um, those define those years. I mean, there are years of the WTA tour in this decade that you that were defined by Simona's failures. I mean, that's, you know, that that's just a fact. Um, and then there are years that were defined by her triumphs. And, um, you know, when she won Roland Garros, like, I think that, you know, within the tennis industrial complex, I'm not going to talk about fans because fans can feel however they want, but at least mm -hmm. within the sport, there were a, people really, really were happy for her. They wanted it for her. She was a player who was, you know, in a lot of ways, the, I mean, in a lot of ways, yes, in a lot of ways, no, you know, the Annie Murray or the David Ferrer, whatever, of, of the women's tour, of somebody who seemed to be doing everything right, but just like couldn't get it all together for a two week run. Um, so there's that. I think that she's evolved a lot. I think that the way that she has used the sport to intrinsically change the person that she is hmm. um, has been incredibly interesting slash inspiring, depending on how you're made up, but at least at a minimum interesting to watch um, from being this absolute anger ball. And she still is, obviously, as we saw <laughs> at, in Shenzhen. And she, which, but the fact that she has consistently acknowledged that, like, I'm a work in progress, it's still an issue, it's, but like, that she wants to change, that she went from being a player who, you know, thought that she stubbornly had all the answers to being somebody who was open to sports psychology, um, to working with a sports psychologist, to being raw and open to everyone else about what she was going through. I think in all ways, like she was really, really captivating if you were paying attention. Um, and then also I think that her coaching partnership with Darren, I think was probably like, the most prominent coaching partnership. Well, I mean, Serena and Patrick, obviously, but um, but in terms of one of the premier coaching partnerships uh, on tour, uh, I think that it was it was way way up there. Clear number so, two behind yeah. Serena and Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's been, you know, and, and obviously a lot of it is probably it, to the extent that there's bias. Like when Simona had her breakout season and she was winning all like those international titles. Uh, and then she finished the year winning the title in Sofia, the, the what used to be the secondary championships or whatever. Um, I was still with Sports Illustrated, and it was my last year at Sports Illustrated. So like I talked to her and Virginia Rizich, and I'd never talked to her before that moment. So And I still very vividly remember it and just thought that she was so interestingly open and honest about stuff that a lot of players are never honest about. Um, and then the following year is when I became a WTA writer, so I had like more access. 
and I was in there all the time and I would talk to her all the time because, you know, as a young, as a player who was relatively new and also from a small country, she wasn't getting the attention that everybody, all the other players that were around her ranking were getting. So I was the one who was kind of charged to be there all the time, right? And also it helped that I found her compelling. But she, I mean, probably her and Naomi are probably the two players of, and I mean, lean on the first half of the decade, but those are the players that I've interviewed the most, mm -hmm. the most regularly. So I also can acknowledge that like, maybe my putting her at number two is inflated because I feel like I have been there every step of the way yeah. in her journey. As opposed to, I remember like one time, like a bunch of us were talking about this, like when we talk about Serena, when we talk about Maria, like a lot of the older players, Venus, I have not been there every step of the way. In fact, I'm an interloper. Like the Doug Robsons, the Tom Paradas, the Matt Cronins, the Chris Clary, like they've been, I don't know. Like, I, and so I haven't built the relationship with those players the way that um, I have with like that generation of like, like the, the Angie on type player. Uh, but Simona was probably the first like big player in Angie who was like right there lockstep. So, yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Yeah, no, so it totally has. Simona too. I I was expecting Simona to chart high for you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I I I, I can't argue any of that. Like she's been probably the biggest player, a full time player. Serena's tough. Serena, spoiler is I'm assuming your number one, Courtney. <laughs> Twist. It's Stritzova. No, I I assume it's uh, Serena for you at number one. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay. Just gonna move to Serena. <laughs> Serena Williams, number Jennifer. one. Yeah, Serena Williams, number one. And I think I was gonna I was gonna start to say what is Serena. Serena's been interesting because she's been second half of the decade to finish up a little bit on Simona. Serena's been second half of the decade, you know, very in and out, very much a part timer on tour. And Simona has been kind of the full time protagonist, I think, fair to say, of the tour in a lot of ways. The way the person who thinks sent around most clearly and most consistently. Um, in this time when, you know, Kerber's been way up and way down and way up and way down, Halep has been a, more or less a picture of consistency. And when she did drop down uh, to, like, number eight or so at Wimbledon, she responded by winning that slam. So um, the lows have not been too low for Halep. I mean, I think that it's an incredible stat for Simona, especially when we talk about and everybody, you know, talks about the instability on the WTA Tour. Since Simona made the top ten, I'm not sure. I think she maybe dropped out of it once for a few weeks, but she didn't drop out. Of, but other than maybe like one or two weeks, she's been in the top 10. Can and I, that's like a, an absurd level of consistency. Before we get to Serena, can I just point out there are several number ones who neither of us mentioned <laughs> players who at number one in this decade. Uh, Kleisters was number one early on. None of us named her. Neither of us named her. And maybe she'll be in the 2020s. No, she's coming back. Pliskova has been a number one. Neither of us named her. And Ash Barty is our current number one, and neither of us named her either. Um, which is all to say, like, this is before we get to Serena, who is the obvious number one choice, and I had no hesitation. I could not ever possibly talk myself into picking somebody else. Yeah, just know there were so many, so many choices, and people, I'm sure, I'm sure Romanian fans are already my mentions before I've even posted this episode, uh, yelling at me for not picking Simona um, in my top ten. But there was a lot of right answers out there, and your lists and your mileage may vary in wildly different directions. I said Stritzova sort of jokingly, but if you want to put Stritzova in there, why not? You know, there's like lots of great picks. Schiavone to 
Uh, I don't know who else we haven't named who could be in there. I mean, Zvonareva was like a great player in the early 2010s who we didn't mention. There's a lot of different choices. Yeah, so I, I saw someone mention Putin Seva. Like, sure, go for it. Why not? Live uh, your truth, I say. But yes, but your truth. Just but Serena is the fact, truth. In fact one. checking myself, though, just going back, Ray okay. Simona, she made her top 10 debut on January 27th, 2014. Okay. And she's never left. Pretty good. That's got to be the longest streak, right? Got to be. Yeah, it's the longest active active streak. Yeah, I don't know where it compares, but it's pretty close to like eclipsing, like being the longest streak in a really freaking long time. Yeah. Uh, but I'll crunch those numbers when I choose to re-engage. <laughs> don't, don't re-engage yet. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your Portland vacation. Just as Serena Thank Williams has much. enjoyed her Bahamas yacht or whatever she was partying on this offseason. Living that life. I tell you. Deserves it. Ring mm-hmm. out this decade because a lot of stuff. Happened. A lot, a whole lot happened. So let's just walk through like Serena's decade. Serena 2010 starts off by winning one of the most intense Grand Slam finals of the decade, maybe the most, where Justin Enning came out of retirement and played Serena in the final of the 2010 Australian Open, and they'd never played each other before in a Grand Slam final, and that match was tense, y'all. When like it was like Serena was seeing a ghost the whole time, like that Justine who she thought she had dead and buried came back and was there across the net once more and playing really well. And Justine had the whole crowd on her side. And it's one of my favorite Serena performances ever. She's in this like yellow dress shirt. She has red hair. So love Ginger, Serena. Yeah, it was, it was, it was phenomenal match. Uh, YouTube highlights are worth your time. The third set, especially it's like super, super good in that match. Wins Wimbledon later that year, like clear number one. And then steps on some broken glass in Munich and, slashes up her foot badly and is out for the rest of the year and it's way down and gets a pulmonary embolism and is in a hospital in pretty dire condition and then comes back and within a year she's back in a grand slam final in new york in 2011 with stoser and that one falls apart pretty spectacularly and second time in a couple of years she had, had a, sort of a, a meltdown at a u.s open in a big match then 2012 she loses at a you know playing pretty well but then loses first round of a Grand Slam for the first time ever in her career to Rosano, and it's this big crisis moment for her. And then she hires Patrick, and she wins U.S. Open. Sorry, wins Wimbledon and Olympics and U.S. Open, and she's back on top. And then 2013, she loses to Sloan, and she made Sloan, and then she wins the French Open for the first time in ten years. And then she loses to Lisicki. Lisicki, by the way, would have been an interesting wild card pick for somebody's list. I didn't see her name by anybody, but I would have in- I would have entertained Lisicki or the other one I haven't mentioned, Bartoli. Bartoli could have been a, a 2010s pick. I mean, Anyways. if I want to start trolling, then I would have picked Alizé Cornet, but that's just me. Continue. <laughs> Serena. Still an absurd feat. An absurd oh my, feat. Oh, my gosh. Continue. Three times in one year beating Serena. And that's the thing with Serena. Like, Serena, like, makes other people. Like, it's what she said to Sloan wasn't wrong. <laughs> like, Which is why, again, the head-to-head between Serena and Maria is spectacular. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Because, like, she doesn't show up sometimes. And yet, in over twenty meetings, she has never not shown up against. She this always shows up against. Unbelievable! Maria. It's so it's it's amazing. It's, it's one of the most amazing like psychological things I've seen in my lifetime. Like I can't help but marvel at it. Which, by the way, randomly the other day I was walking down the street and I was like, "Man, I completely forgot that Serena and Maria played at the U.S. Open." Oh yeah, <laughs> like, remember when round? that was oh, a thing? Like I was just like, "Oh my god, I yeah. did not remember that happening." But I probably need... because I was just like not about it. But like, yeah, it was. And it was yeah. it was very quick, also. But I need it was. I, I need that draw in public next year. I'm just gonna put that out there. The uh, 2013th. Let me just finish my little tour to Serena. Serena loses Lisicki fourth round Wimbledon, wins U.S. Open, 
2013 over Azarenka, another epic three-set final, as she did the year before. Uh, 2014 has a weird year at slams, takes L's to Ivanovic, Muguruza, and Cornet. Has the most bizarre match of the decade. No one talks about this either, her doubles match with Venus. Uh, it's 2014 Wimbledon, where she's stumbling around and just looking so out of it. One of the strangest moments of the decade in tennis, for sure. Uh, then comes back, wins Wimbledon, sorry, wins the U.S. Open, and then that is out of somewhat out of nowhere starts the Serena Slam 2.0. She wins four slams in a row, reels off Australia, great final against Maria, one of the better matches they've ever played, uh, one of the best Grand Slam finals of the decade. Uh, out of wins like the flu game equivalent against Baczynski at the French Open semifinal to get to the final of that tournament, beats Safarova in that final, and then beats Muguruza in 2015, Wimbledon final, and then loses to Vinci, U.S. Open. And then from then on, she doesn't play. This is when she starts going part-time, really, because from then on, she doesn't play a single fall tournament the whole rest of the decade, uh, which is kind of a big loss for the tour, honestly, uh, that Serena starts being a part-timer. Uh, yeah, 2016, she loses finals at Australia, French, wins Wimbledon, loses to Pliskova, semis of the U.S. Open 2017, wins Australian Open while pregnant with her daughter Olympia against Venus in the final, uh, comes back Indy Wells next year, loses two finals, uh, Wimbledon and big blow up U.S. Open with Carlos Ramos against Osaka in 2019, loses two more slam finals in Wimbledon U.S. Open again. Like, that's a lot. That's like, as much as she's a huge figure like in the culture, like she's also like constantly backing it up in tennis like yeah she hasn't been closing but she also like even though she's part-time like she's always been able to switch it on just about all the time the one notable misfire is probably the french open this year which just came back too soon and lost to kenan pretty badly but like her ability my gosh to still impose herself and her willpower it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher and the returns on investment aren't what they were but, like, she's still such an incredible force and such a legend of the sport and of all sports. And 2010 was when that legend really got cemented. And, like like I said, with Venus at the top of the show, like, that it's still going into 2020 with Serena is, is very, very cool. That having won her first Grand Slam in 1999, that she's still, like, the player to beat at the 2020 Australian Open is kind of nuts. I mean, to, I mean, all of that, obviously, well done on the recap, Serena, who, you know, in, I think, most ways was the player of the aughts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She... She, yeah. So she she goes into 2010, or sorry, yeah, 2010, having won 11 majors. She wins 12 in the 10s. Mm. Like, that's pretty bonkers in terms of, you know, just like, again, her longevity, but also just how successful, because I think that a little bit... There's so much recency bias, right, that can exist. I think I'm definitely, like, guilty of it on both my men's list and my women's list, but, like, I tried to fight against it. But there is recency bias, and it's very easy, you know, given the discourse, as it were, uh, the last two years to kind of feel like Serena's, like, not part of the conversation, but she obviously absolutely is. She comes into 2010, she has 11 majors. She finishes the decade having won 12 more. She finishes, let's see, 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2015, she's the player of the year. Yeah. She's the only player of anyone who won player of the year on the WTA side in this decade to win more than once. Wow. 
That that yes. sums up he, things really well. That's that's yeah. That's big. 2010 was Kim. 2011 was Petra. From 2012 to 2015 was Serena. 16 was Kerbert. 17 mm-hmm. was Muguruza. 18 was Halep. 19 was Ash. So, I mean, duh. I mean, she's the player of the decade, Serena. Notwithstanding, yeah. you know, all of that. I've said it uh, before in the past podcasts. I will reiterate it again. The fact that Serena has made four major finals since her return is an unbelievable achievement. No one else has done that in that time span. Not even close. And the fact that people, not even close, and the fact that people poo-poo it is partly their fault. Like, I mean, it's partly the fault of Serena and Patrick of, of saying 24 is the goal. And so if I don't win one, it's a failure. But like, you made four major finals. Like, that's unbelievable. Given what she went through in childbirth, um, and then also just coming back and, and coming back against a very hungry and going back to what I said about Ostapenko, you know, nearly two hours ago is, you know, against a field that is incredibly hungry. A Sonia Kennan does not step on that court and is, is, is scared to beat you. She wants to beat you. Like Naomi Osaka ain't scared to beat you. She wants to beat you. Bianca Andreescu isn't scared. She wants to. Um, different field these days. So for her to though still navigate all that and to make four major finals is is remarkable. It's it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it, she's Serena freaking Williams. I don't know what can be said about her that hasn't been said yet. Um, an icon of the sport, a, a a person and a player that means way more, especially to the states, um, than a, than swinging a racket makes her in terms of relevance. She's 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 the Beyonce of sports. Like the the uh, attention that she brings to women's tennis in the U.S. like cannot be overstated. Yeah. Like everything is hooked around her. Always the Beyonce thing is so true. And just like the U.S. Open final in 2018, obviously was the explosion of this. And like everything that Serena, this enormous symbolic weight and power and presence she has in American culture right now. When it comes to things that, and then when it get tangled up in things that are like small tennis things it feels so mismatched and outsized and ridiculous so it's like oh yes bernard gudicelli is for some reason like on the nightly news in the u.s because he said something about serena's outfit <laughs> like what what kind of in what world does that make any sense that's happening but you know same thing we're talking about code violations and coaching from the stands is now like a topic of like national import on like msnbc like all and it's like, what of america what is this got the rules of tennis wrong because of serena and discussed it for months in terms of, like it's it, the blow up after the 2018 final and you know Serena's press conference of you know doing it for the moms and for all the women who have been screwed over and fucked over in their careers and their lives etc cetera, etc cetera. like we can all within the sport discuss all of that all we want from a technical perspective but on the grander grander scale that shit mattered to people. It meant a lot to a lot of people. Absolutely. It meant a lot to so many, so many people. Serena's presence or her absence has been the story of 2010. It has dictated it all. I say that as a, a WTA writer in the, in the latter half of the, um, of, the, of the decade, as obviously we're in a position where we know that obviously, you know, the players who have been our marquee players you know, much like the ATP obviously sees it as well, like that time is going to end soon. 
And for us, uh, on the women's side, we got dry runs, right? Because a lot we had of them, yeah. time. A lot of them. And, um, and so that gave oxygen to this next group of players who, who, who stepped into the void and stepped into the, 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 that role of being the ones that drive the sport. But no matter what they did, um, you know, Naomi is really the only one that maybe broke through, maybe Bianca, but I don't know that Bianca translates outside of North America yet. In Canada, honestly, I mean, it's I don't I don't know what her profile is in the U.S. and it's too it's too late. Like she won the last slam of the decade, so it's tough to know like how that translates. Right? But, yeah. But so so going back to what we were saying before, like I think that that's why Naomi is on the list, right? I mean, like she's yeah. translated, but outside of Naomi, like there just there just hasn't been that that person, and so yeah. And there's I mean, no space. Serena takes up that much space. Yeah, she does, and I don't say that as a complaint. Like she's just. We, I can sit there, I say this in, with complete transparency, like as a WTA writer, I can sit there and I can try and sell you, and I have tried to sell you, you know, player from A to Z. But I also know going into a major or going into a tournament where Serena's playing, everything changes. And you no longer care about, like the general public, not you, but like the general public no longer cares about you know the the players that that do make up the 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 backbone of the yeah. active current tour that is the power of serena that is the 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 space that she takes up and it's well deserved like i don't even complain about it like that's she's earned that right but with that right and with that 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 role has it's a double edged sword right because then we go into the last two us opens on this whole like coronation thing where Americans expect her to just roll through people. And that's, which is like encouraged by sponsors, by media coverage, by the, 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 the enormity of what she represents to people and the way that she's positioned as being this flawless, dominating presence. And there's a double-edged sword to that, but that doesn't negate the fact that she is this dominating presence. Two things. Yeah, I just want to echo what you said, which I which I loved. I think, like, just repeat what you said, just to pull out as a pull quote. When Serena's there, the story is Serena. When Serena's not there, the story is, like, Serena's absence. And it almost feels at times like every tournament she's not in has an asterisk on it, which is completely unfair to the tour. But, like, she's that be-all, end-all. Well, I, w- I will push back against that for a split second, only because I think that that was true for... A lot of the decade, I I do okay. genuinely think that that changed this year. Like I feel like this year was the year where people were like, kind of like, okay, like this is what it is. Like let's go. But Fair I enough. agree. I agree with you on the whole though. But just okay. Yeah. And then the second thing I was going to say is to talk about Serena's future a bit. Like I had a couple of different people separately ask me who were like Serena fans, who like for the first time were like. Do you think she's going to break the record? No longer when, no longer will she get to twenty six, but like, will she ever get to twenty four? And like that, that doubt is creeping in. I'm like honestly thrilled by it because it's so. It was so unfair to people to think that it was a given that she was just going to waltz in and take it, and it was disrespectful to her and then to the tour and everything to think that like this was that anything is secure with her. And that she didn't have to work and fight for everything the whole time. 
Um, and so we'll see. And I hope people have that attitude in the 2020s, which presumably will be the last decade of her career, but who the hell knows? If she gets the record, awesome, great, let's celebrate. If she doesn't, she's still the best player of the last two decades and very arguably the best player of all time. Um, and it's a win-win for her. And I know, like, and I know that she's not going to ever really buy into that herself. That's not how she's wired, not how she's been wired since she was a kid. But, um, yeah, that's, I hope that her, that the sort of watching public and the other tennis commentary, I can sort of try to just figure out some way to appreciate what she's, what she has done instead of just focusing on what's next. Cause I just don't think that's fair to anybody or fun for anybody at this point. Well, and, and it's also, you know, it's Serena being an unfair victim of her success. We talked about this before. Yeah. That the, yeah, we've talked about it before, and I will reiterate it every single time there's a microphone in my face, which there is, so I'm going to say it again. When, you know, the fact that Serena has made it look so, quote-unquote, easy to get her, you know, 23, which it hasn't been easy, but people seem to think that it was, is a credit to her incredibleness and not a statement as to how easy the thing that she's done is which means that it's still fucking hard to win seven matches over two weeks it's probably even harder when everybody wants to freaking beat you and it's even harder that you're older and maybe not you know what you were five or ten years ago and you know that and when you've lost your last four finals in a row now exactly and the tour so smells the feet, blood. Right. And so the feat of what you're trying to do is even harder than it was before. And yet, because of your success, everyone is sitting there thinking that it's supposed to be easy. That, oh, well, but it's Serena. I mean, it's Serena fucking Williams. Like, she's going to go and do that. And she demolishes Wang Shang. Like, duh. Right? Like, she demolishes a nervous, like, a nervous Svitolina. Duh. Like, obviously, it's going to happen. It's like, no, that's not really how it works. And I, yeah, it's, it, it, it genuinely bothers me, pisses me off, breaks my heart that she can't just, like, that she isn't allowed to just play and swing a racket and just get to do what Roger does. And I'm not saying that there isn't pressure on Roger. There is. But, I mean, she's made four freaking finals in the last two seasons Four out of the last six slams, yep. It, it's, unbe- it's unbelievable. And yet, like, people, oh, she didn't win the, oh, uh, Margaret, oh. Uh, like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just, I get so, so mad about it, as you know. I know that you know this, but. I know you know. I know. I know you know, but I'm sometimes I'm not sure the people know this, because I know I bitch about this all the time privately, but, yeah. Anyway, with that. Serena Williams, <laughs> our most uh, defining player of the decade for the 2010s, her second time winning this in a row. I would say, like, if we were doing the show in December 2009, I could have imagined conspiring to have, like, a joint award for the Williams sisters together for the 2000s. Uh, but Serena would have gotten individually, but yeah. I could have seen myself splitting the ballot and giving it to the Williams sisters as a as a pair um, but either way, the, the award stays in the Williams household again. We have no idea who's going to be in the 2020s. It'll be another fun decade, which we will join you in when the calendar turns. Thank you guys for listening to NCR 
all decade, by the way, we've done like Whew. nearly. Uh, let me look. Let me do the math real quick. We've done like nearly three hundred shows. I know this is number two thirty eight B, but yeah, this is right around number three hundred. It's gonna yeah, be when actual it comes out. shows. So, yeah, yeah, actual episodes. Sure. I think that sounds close about to right. that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty been pretty cool. So thank you, thank you guys for spending much of your decade with us. It's been an honor, and you guys are <laughs> patient for listening to our voices for this long, uh, especially <laughs> mine. Yeah, have a uh, happy new year. We will see you in Australia. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we're both Unless going to Brisbane to start our year. Audible something in between then, but yeah, we'll both be in Brizzy, Briz Vegas, as it were. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Been a crazy, a crazy decade, Ben, on every level. It has, and that's over. And who knows what the future will be? There's a podcast that I heard of that's called Worst Year Ever, and I was like, oh, I wonder what this is about. And it's about 2020. It's like looking ahead to why next year is going to be the worst year ever. And I was like, Tremendous. that's that feels like too correct. I'm uncomfortable with all no, of that. I don't need that. I don't need that. But we're gonna be there. <laughs> if you, if you, this is the last exit ramp available before the road hits 2020. So, sadly, despite all of our powers, we cannot stop the world from turning the calendar no. from clicking forward. So we will, we will be there in 2020. Whether we're around in 2029, who knows? But we will, we will start the decade with hopefully batteries recharged. Yeah, eyes wide open. Do you have rent raves to finish the decade? Any, not that it'd be decade wide, but like anything. Uh recently that you've that you've seen that's left an impression on you i know we both watched marriage story recently yeah no i mean i feel like yeah i mean i guess i i would talk about like movies which if you follow me on on my personal account which please don't like honestly (laughs) i tweet in hopes that people will get so annoyed as to unfollow me and i actually was thinking today that i would love to like if i had a personal assistant what I would literally tell them was like, go through all the people who follow me and basically either mute or block everybody that you know for a fact does not like me. Like, <laughs> like, there are a lot of people that I'm just like, you don't like me. Why do you follow me? Like, this is so stupid. Anyways, but when it comes to films, in my over-the-top tweeting about the films, uh, yes, uh, 2010s, the decade, my film of the decade is probably, yeah, it is Social Network, I Mm. think, uh, which I loved and which I think speaks volumes about where we're at and presaged a lot of it. I'm a total David Fincher stan. I love everything that he's ever done. I love the precision with which he he directs. Uh, Zodiac is my other favorite movie from the last decade. So yeah, I would say Social Network. Uh, Shout out to Mad Max Fury Road, which I think is just an unbelievable feat of filmmaking. Um, like honestly, you guys have no diff- no idea how difficult it is to pull off the shit that George Miller pulled off uh, in that film. Um, yeah, so I, I love that a lot. Uh, number three for me is probably Phantom Thread, which is a film that I think about often. And I'm sorry, it's like absurdly romantic. It's really messed up, but it is a really <laughs> romantic film uh, in its own really fucked up way. Um, so I love Phantom Thread, love Paul Thomas Anderson, incredible decade that he had as well. And yeah, like those are kind of my three like standouts. And then there's just like films that I really loved 
in this decade into the Spider-Verse, Jador, The Favorite, I think it's just mm. an unbelievable script. Love unbelievable favorite. script. I will stand and I will go down with this ship. La La Land fucking slaps. I'm not going <laughs> to be here for the La La Land erasure. Not going to be here for it. Like, I get it, but no. Like, La La Land was freaking awesome. And Damien Chazelle deserves hella, hella props because his first three films were Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. All tremendous films. The latter two got shit for no reason the first one just kind of went under the radar but i think is an amazing i don't know like uh, insight and and questioning of what it takes to be great and what you're willing to give up to be great which is really honestly kind of what la la land is as well um but and then first man everybody ignored for no god damn good reason very frustrating uh and then the last point that i will make regarding cinema is that i am not a leo DiNardo. What did I just say? Leo DiNardo? Leo... <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I'm not a Leo fan. I'm not. I, I don't like the guy. I don't like particularly his acting choices. I very rarely ever think he's good in what he does. As much I don't revere him in any way. Mm-hmm. He is a reason I won't see a movie. This, 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 is, this is all just CC Carol Bouchard. <laughs> we know. We know. <laughs> you want your assistant to block Carol? Carol. We get it. We get it. CC Carol Bouchard, CC David Avakian hate the fucking guy. Really do. Not a, not a reason that I see a film. But the degree of difficulty of what he did in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is off the charts. I feel like people are not recognizing this. I feel like that he should be the shoe-in for Best Supporting Actor in all awards. Because just watch the, se- watch the two scenes of him where he's like effing up the lines with Timothy Oliphant, but then like go later into the scene where he nails it with the kid. I mean, he's an actor trying to show bad acting, but also show that he was at once good at acting. It's it's so difficult what he did, and I have a lot of respect for it. So I just feel like people are ignoring Leo. Is he getting supporting over, and then, and then, and then Pitt is getting lead? No, they're both supporting, I think. That's cheating. You have to have a lead, Quentin. I don't like that. But they're not, though. Like, Brad's not lead. This is... Like, nobody in that film feels lead. That is a... Honestly, they are both leads. And then Margot Robbie's Mm. is supporting. And Lena Dunham. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, everybody puts in their own... Did you know that, like, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, who obviously won, like, best lead, was actually only in the film for, like, 20 minutes? Yeah, I believe it. But I feel like everyone's, so, like, running to support. There's just been this trend where everyone tries to, like, duck into supporting because I think it's an easier way to win. And... Well, because nobody wants to go up against my boy, Driver. Oh, Driver. Driver better win, Driver. Yo. Talk about, Driver. like, defini- definition of the decade, people. Goodness. Ugh. 2010s. Adam Driver. What a dude. Yeah, good actor. Like, I feel like Ryan Gosling will never get cast for a film anymore now that Adam Driver is, like, in his peak. I, I, I hear And that's that. fine. Kind of. I don't know. It, there, Anyways. There's room for both. There's room for both. <laughs> there's room for both. But I did, I did love Marriage Story. Uh, it's definitely one of my top, like, ten films of the year. Um, but I still have yet to see. This is weird, but I haven't seen Parasite yet. I know. I and keep I haven't telling seen the Farewell you. yet. I, just... I know, and I haven't seen Uncut Gems. Knives Out was great. The first nine months of this year, outside of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is absolute shite. Uh, it's only the last three months that have been, like good 
And Irishman, I respect intellectually. I understand what Scorsese was doing. I have issues with it. I don't think that De Niro was that great. Pesci was amazing. I honestly feel like Scorsese's just talking to himself like, oh, I did Goodfellas and I glorified Glinksters. And oh, actually, this is how... Anyways, Ben hasn't seen it yet, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah, I think, I, think, I think Irishman is very good. I think it's just not the film for me. Well, there, That's all I had to say. Well, there we go. Um, yeah, you should see Parasite. Because I know you were planning on seeing it in Australia, but I don't think it's going to be there. I, I'm really... I know. I'm warning I'm you. I'm working on it. I, I might see it this week in Portland, just because, like, yes, you were, you told me this, and I don't know why I thought it, but yes, it made sense that, like, Parasite came out there, like, in the summer, yeah. which is weird. Although, in my flight back from Asia and England last month, Parasite was on the plane. Yeah, so if it's already on planes, you cannot bank on it being in theaters in January, is what I'm I saying. I know. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll try and see it ASAP, because I know everybody says see it on a big screen, so. I agree. Yeah, and if Steph haven't seen it yet, I'm sure she'll love it, too, so. Let's cool. see it with Steph. This is very inside talk we're doing now. But, <laughs> Super weird. Yeah. Um, I, my other endorsement. Uh, oh, I got into rewatching the David Ehrlich uh, year in cinema countdown things he does, which are so good, which are so great and beautiful. I will say, especially watching several of them back to back, his rankings are kind of nuts. He's amazing. At the rankings are shit. Making movies you've never heard of look essential and beautiful and amazing. And that's his gift. Actually parsing what he ranks where is a little nuts. But, like, they are beautiful videos. What's, a, what's an example of, of one of the boring movies that you thought he made look like, oh, that is, I have to watch that. I wrote down a whole bunch of names of things, actually, when I was watching them. Uh, let me see if I have this here. Um... Like, there was this, like, I don't know if it's boring or not, but, like, there was this, like, French-Israeli movie called Synonyms that he put in his montage. I'd never heard of it before it was in his montage. I, like, looked it up, and it's playing at, like, some synagogue mm. in D.C., and I was going to go <laughs> yesterday and then did not. But I regret that deeply. Just a few a few different things that he, he mentioned. But, I mean, like, I will tell you in terms of, like, The Grand Assault, like, he, his number one movie of 2017 was Call Me By Your Name. So you do it that way you will, Courtney. Don't, yeah. You know how... I had to, you know what, at this point, I'll just say it on the podcast. I think I said it on the podcast before, but I had to admit this the other day to like my really good friend who I hadn't seen in like a couple years. And she was talking about her love for Timothy Chalamet. AKA Sasha Zverev. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't like Timothy Chalamet. And she's like, what? And I was like, no, I, I, I affirmatively, the way that I feel about Leo is the way that I feel about Chalamet. Like, I just like, if he's in it, like I do want to see little women because of Greta. Yeah. But I also don't want to see it because of Chalamet. And I just can't. Like, it's it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I, uh, that guy. So that's, I mean, I'll just leave it at that. And I didn't love Call, Call, Call Be By Your Name. I didn't. There you go. And with that. It out loud. And with that, we will call you by goodbye 2019 slash decade. It's a terrible outro. But. Here's a song to wash that taste away. Happy New Year, folks. And we'll see you in 2020. Bye. Ciao. How many decades will your husband say his mother has lived? Gloria. Ten decades. Ten decades. <laughs> Gentlemen, how many decades has your mother lived? Daryl, you have a troubled look on your face. What's the matter? Oh, I don't know what a decade is. <laughs> 
44th birthday, so she'd be good. At four years, a decade, she'd be 10 decades. 10 decades. <laughs> <laughs>